thanks very much, uh, <coughs> uh, honorable members. Um, the meeting is officially open. Uh, let me welcome the chairperson of the Select Committee Finance Comrade Unis, uh, Standing Committee Appropriations, Schengen, Comrade Buteles, uh, Select Committee Appropriations, Comrade Dikelet Masang, uh, members of uh, uh, Standing Committees and Select Committees, you are all welcome. Uh, welcome, uh, Treasury. Uh, I'm not sure from the political level if the minister, no, the minister is on on leave. Uh, it's not well. We wish him uh, a speedy recovery. Uh, if the deputy minister is in the platform, he's welcome. Uh, I saw the DG and the entire team of Treasury, uh, uh, the SARS commissioner. Uh, Mr. K. Sweater is on the platform. You are welcome. Uh, welcome the stakeholders. And then uh, welcome the entire support team uh, from Parliament, uh, NA and NCOP, uh, the media and the public. Uh, today we are getting uh, responses uh, by National Treasury and uh, SARS. Uh, uh, from the submissions uh, that uh, we received from the public hearings that we had uh, two days uh, ago. Uh, do we have uh, apologies? Morning, Chair. Uh, morning, everybody else. Um, from Standing Committee on Finance, it's Dr. George, uh, Mr. Sarupin, and... Um, Mr. Vessels, um, also just to note that there's a new alternate member of the DA, Mr. Jan de Villiers, and he is online. Thank you. From the Select Committee on Finance, Chairperson, we have an apology from uh, Ms. Nita, um, and I just received an apology now from Ms. Masam, who will be leaving them shortly. Thanks, Chair. Okay. Uh, thanks. Uh, let's move to the next item. As you remember that um, uh, Honorable Eunice Karim has suggested that uh, we should spend uh, some time on uh, tax-related uh, issues. So I believe that uh, National Treasury and SARS uh, will see as to how do they divide the time uh, between themselves. I'm not going to uh, dictate uh, I think they have done that because we have agreed uh, two days ago as to uh, a bit of time should be spent on uh, tax-related matters. But we are not saying that the other matters are not important. Uh, try by all means, uh, within the limited time that we have, that uh, you deal with all the issues that have been raised by uh, uh, stakeholders. Uh, so now is, uh, we are in item two. Responses uh, by uh, Treasurer and uh, SARS uh, to submissions received during public hearings of the 2022 fiscal framework and revenue proposals. Uh, according to the time allocation is 55 minutes. 
uh, over to you. Uh, let's start from uh, the DG, then uh, you will indicate how uh, you are going to share time and then the SARS commission. Over to you, DG. Um, Thank you, Chair. Good morning, honorable members of parliament, different chairs of committees. Thank you very much, and colleagues, for the opportunity, uh, and members of civil society and everyone present. Um, and we welcome the suggestion by the committee and, and uh, in, in the way we are going to conduct today's business. Uh, it's, it's focused, and we really thank the committee for that approach. Uh, because we think it will add value to the process. Um, Chair, <clears throat> two things, I'm not, you know, we, 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 we are aware of, we've got only 50 plus or so minutes. Uh, we'll, we'll share the time between ourselves and SARS colleagues. Uh, you know, and Edgar is going to lead the presentation to us. And without wasting time, Chair, maybe let me ask him to come in immediately. I was going to make some remarks, but some of my remarks are already encapsulated in, and Edgar can come in uh, and quickly take us through the presentation. Thank you, Chair, with your permission. So the commissioner will come after Edgar. Yes, Chair, I was thinking like that, yes, because Edgar will be quick and then we'll have a tech session separately, yes. Okay, okay, no problem. Over to you, Edgar. Thank you, Chair. <clears throat> um, so I'll be as quick as I can and then uh, Mr. Momoniet will uh, also come in on the tax proposals and the loan guarantee scheme. And then the um, 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 SARS commissioner can obviously come in. Um, there's a separate set of slides that SARS, I believe, has. So um, our, our Commissioner Kiswetter would have to be made co-host to share. But I'm sure that's an arrangement the Secretary can make. Um, as normal, we outline these submissions that we uh, looked through um, and um, uh, that we're providing responses to today. There were a number, uh, a chairperson and honorable members, there were a number of uh, very technical um, observations and statements. For the sake of time, what we've done in this presentation is we have included an annexure, uh, which we're not gonna go through here, but it provides a lot of those technical details. So I would um, refer members as well as our partners in civic society and other organizations to those annexures for the sake of time for, for, for the explanation of the more technical parts of the submissions that were made <clears throat> over the last uh, few days. Um, our main responses center around the five key issues of economic growth and reforms um, revenue and tax proposals, uh, which uh, will be dealt with at the end, of course, by um, uh, Mr. Mamoniet and uh, Commissioner Kiswetter, our expenditure, um, um, fiscal resilience, uh, as well as other matters uh, related to state-owned companies, corruption, public participation, and measures to support businesses. Um, just as an overarching message, um, we note the comments made about fiscal policy and fiscal stimulus. Our uh, um, uh, position in this regard um, uh, that we articulated in the budget review, including in chapters one, two, and three, is that fiscal policy alone cannot solve the problems of inequality, poverty, and unemployment. And this was also articulated by the president in the State of the Nation Address. 
Um, two-thirds of the economy is private uh, sector and one-third is government uh, uh, spending. What we need is inclusive growth and economic reforms, which are essential for lifting people out of poverty and providing jobs um, and addressing uh, inequality. Um, responses, as I've said, secondly on taxation are going to be dealt with a little bit later. On spending, we wanted to make the point because there were various comments made during the public hearings around um, spending cuts. There are no uh, budget reductions in the 2022 budget, uh, honorable chair and honorable members. So there's no further budget reductions announced at all in this budget. The 2022 budget, in fact, allows for increases in critical spending areas um, using um, um, a portion of revenue improvements. As we indicated in chapter three of the MTB, of the, excuse me, of the budget review, um, uh, since the 2021 budget, around 55% of the additional revenue that has come as a result of the windfalls, mainly from the commodity cycle, has gone towards additional uh, spending to address critical problems in, um, in social security, health and education, more uh, money for the police, more money for the Justice Department, um, um, as well as um, more funding for uh, uh, the local government equitable share, free basic services uh, component. Um, fourthly, uh, there were discussions around fiscal resilience and debt sustainability. And um, as we have indicated in the past, our approach is to address the fiscal imbalances that are causing debt service costs to crowd out space to spend on critical priorities. And that is a key focus. And that's why we've taken 45% of the windfalls and we've put them towards deficit reduction uh, towards reducing the debt. In respect of other matters, I will touch on them just now um, uh, uh, in, in the next uh, coming slides. This slide um, uh, really repeats some of the things that I've said. So I'm not gonna go through each of these um, of these uh, uh, points, except to indicate that uh, structural constraints um, are a major impediment to growth because they have reduced potential uh, growth. And that's been clear over the past uh, decade and a bit since um, the period after the global financial crisis, where we saw significant growth in other economies around the world. But South Africa almost has a structural lid. And this is in areas such as inadequate electricity supply. If you, if, if you have inadequate electricity, it's, it, you can't grow. Um, and with the, the, the load shedding um, challenges we've had, that's been a major uh, constraint. The second type of constraint is regulatory constraint. And that is the effectiveness and the efficiency of um, various uh, regulations that are in place. And what's important in this regard is to put in place uh, reforms as outlined in the ERRP um, um, that sequence economic interventions in order to bolster investment, both on the private sector and on the public sector. As far as the public sector is concerned, this budget increases infrastructure and job creation um, 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 spending, it proposes an additional 27 billion in these areas in order to improve um, um, investment. 
Nevertheless, we also need additional reforms um, to, uh, to, to improve the private side of the investment. This includes modernizing network industries. And by network industries, we're talking about transport and logistics and rail and so forth. We're talking about communications. We're talking about um, all of the things that are major inputs into economic activity and for uh, businesses and entrepreneurs to be able to create businesses and create jobs. Um, boosting electricity production, as I've indicated, electricity supply is a major constraint. And then finally, reducing the cost of doing business. The MTBPS detailed progress from Operation Vulindlela. Um, in chapter two of the budget review, we outline a number of reforms and work that is underway to expedite uh, things. That includes approvals uh, to register for embedded uh, electricity generation, um, completing the digital migration and auction spectrum, and clearing the backlog of water uh, use uh, uh, licenses. Uh, in the period coming after the, uh, the worst of COVID, as we have seen so far, the budget also prioritizes uh, measures to promote recovery. They are, as I've indicated, significant public employment programs. Overall, public employment programs are around 76 billion rands in this budget um, um, to support those in particular that have low or no skills to get some kind of temporary uh, employment during this difficult period. In addition to that, the employment tax incentive is extended uh, for the same purpose, uh, particularly for unskilled um, 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 uh, workers. But as I indicated at the beginning, fiscal policy can only do too, so much um, and structural reforms are gonna be important for the rest. Um, this is a repeat of the policy issues that we, um, that we have indicated both in the budget review and our presentation that we did uh, last week after a budget tabling. And part of the critical issue that we raise, uh, uh, Honorable Chair, is that the, the, the thinking around um, government spending and fiscal policy, as I've indicated, is that there are limits. And these limits have become quite evident over the last number of years. A significant disconnect has begun to emerge between spending and economic growth. And by this, what we mean is that even as, econ uh, even as spending has risen quite substantially, in fact, um, in the period after the global financial crisis, government Chair, spending... Chair, Chair, with your permission, sorry, sorry, Edgar. Edgar, just go quickly because we don't want to give you know, text discussions less time. So we want to equalize and maybe do another maximum 15 or so minutes. Or, you know, but, but please just round off quickly. So that SARS also has another 20 or so minutes. Thanks. Sure. So this slide shows what's happened in the relationship between spending and economic growth. And as you can see, we, um, we, we have been observing this divergence over a number of years. A big part of this, of course, is because of the increase in debt. And so the more you spend, the more of the spending is being financed through debt, the more the interest on that debt actually eats into the impact on that spending. So you really have no choice except to address the increased debt 
uh, and no choice except to increase the, um, the, the debt service costs that are, um, are, are crowding out the rest of the spending priorities. As we've indicated, the budget is redistributed. This slide shows how um, most of the budget goes towards social wage. And what that essentially means is that the budget focuses on redistributing resources from the most well-off towards the least well-off. And that's still very much the key focus um, of the budget as it has been uh, for a number of years. This spending on the social wage actually increases over time, as you can see in the, um, in the, in the graph on, on, on the left-hand side. But again, we repeat the message that this has a, a limited effect in the global sense, because in the global sense, what you actually need is you need higher economic growth, higher job creation, um, which will, will, will um, uh, make a bigger impact on inequality and poverty. There were questions around managing the public sector wage bill. Um, as we indicated in the budget, compensation spending has grown significantly, certainly above inflation and certainly above um, uh, economic growth and certainly above per capita incomes in the economy. And so um, certain steps have been proposed since the 2020 budget to rein in the growth in compensation spending. Our approach is that public servants should be compensated fairly. However, there should be room in the budget to grow the size of the public service in a manner that keeps up with the service requirements in the population. And if you have high unit costs for labor, it becomes very difficult to actually hire the nurses and the teachers uh, that you need. Going forward, we're committed to the spending ceiling, but we're also committed to the, um, to the uh, collective bargaining process, um, which we are working uh, together with the Department of Public Service uh, and administration as participants in the next round of negotiations uh, that are starting shortly. This slide, uh, Chair, I'm not gonna go through it. It's a, basically a repeat of how we are addressing a fiscal imbalance. Questions were asked about addressing the debt and the debt service costs. The key issue is to stabilize debt. In other words, to stop it increasing as a percentage of GDP. And that we anticipate to do by 2024-25 when debt to GDP, the debt to GDP ratio will stabilize at 75.1% and then begin to decrease thereafter as shown in the graph on the left-hand side. This uh, slide reflects um, again on debt service costs, um, as well as other items of spending. As you can see, most of the budget is towards social services, particularly learning and culture, which is dominated by education, uh, the social grants. But then you can see that now we're going to be spending a trillion rands on debt service costs. Um, part of um, uh, the way in which we need to manage this is we also uh, indicated in the budget documents the need to strengthen the fiscal anchors, uh, given the weaknesses we've seen in the spending ceiling in the last number of years. And that's gonna be important as part of ensuring that we close the, the fiscal gap. Um, this slide, um, again, merely reflects on the issue of state-owned companies and um, the challenges that we're facing in that regard um, uh, a key area here is that we are referring honorable members 
to the, um, the fact that we do publish and list all the public entities as part of the PFMA schedules. And these, of course, can be, um, can be uh, uh, seen. Another key issue is that during the upcoming financial year, we will be publishing a framework outlining the criteria for government funding of state-owned companies where it becomes necessary. And this will guide and support credible restructuring plans, as well as how we provide government guarantees. This is going to be a public uh, document. So it will allow for a transparent uh, engagement and understanding of exactly uh, how we are dealing with the issue of uh, state-owned uh, companies. Um, I'm not gonna go through the slide, uh, except to indicate that we were asked about public participation and transparency and to indicate to honorable members that we remain amongst the highest ranked countries in the world on uh, transparency. We have improved our public participation. The People's Guide is now being presented in seven languages, so we've added another two. We will eventually get to the 11. So we are increasing the number and we are doing other areas, uh, other areas of public participation um, in radio, um, uh, public outreaches, as well as on the web. Um, this uh, slide just indicates what I've already said about prioritizing the fight against corruption and the amounts of money that we are proposing for the fight against corruption over the, this budget. Um, and uh, to also reiterate what the minister said about the public procurement bill and the work uh, going on there and the intention to still table it in the upcoming uh, year. Chair, um, I'm uh, now gonna hand over, if uh, with your permission, to Mr. Mamoniat and to uh, Commissioner Kisweter to then start taking us through the issues around uh, tax uh, revenue. Uh, Momo? Okay, no, th um, um, morning Chair and uh, honorable members um, and colleagues and everyone present here today. Chair, I'll go quickly through, uh, Chris Axelson and I will go through the text slides quickly and we'll make time obviously for the commissioner to come in. This year, Chair, there were lots of questions on taxation policy, on the, the revenue estimates. And I think we certainly welcome the number of questions. Uh, in fact, in past years, we've always uh, requested, and I think it used to be the practice many years ago, that we would normally have a special session on tax policy and financial sector announcement. Uh, but these has, these have fallen away as part of the post-budget hearings, and we would still plead that uh, if this can't be incorporated into the hearings, we do so soon after, because it does mean that uh, that generally Chapter 4 and some of the annexes have a lot of uh, significant proposals, and these either get lost because there's quite a focus on spending, or they get uh, people realize them quite late when we finally have uh, a Chair? session around the bills. Um, My apologies, Chair. Wait a moment. Uh, Thank you. I'm sorry, Comrade. I've written on the on the chat. I think you have not seen it. Uh, maybe we should ask uh, Momo <laughs> to adjust his uh, gadget. We can only see your mouth. Oh. oh. 
I realize. Can you see me now? Momo's face is cut. Can the chair please ask him to adjust? <laughs> yes, can you can you see, see my you. Get the young people to assist you with technology. <laughs> you can see you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, I hope you can see my tie. I wanted members to see my tie. Um, no, thank you, chair. You have, you have a nice tie, a jacket, but you have been tightened the shirt. We don't understand why. <laughs> Okay, no problem. Okay. Uh, so thank you, Chair. So, 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 Chair, I think just to remind uh, uh, everyone, I think just on the process, I think that when it comes to the tax proposals, there's a bit of what we call shock and awe, because uh, up to budget day, we, we don't really go and consult on the coming tax proposals. And to the extent that there are consultations, they tend to take place immediately after the budget. And between the budget and March and June, we do lots of consultations, particularly for the TLAB, the Tax Laws Amendment Bill and the Tax Administration Bills that we then publish in July. And most taxpayers will only really have a sense for what's uh, the, 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 the real uh, uh, detail around any proposal is in those bills except for the rates. The rates are straightforward. It's a judgment call. And Chair, it's already been published. We published them on budget day. And frankly, we could have hearings as soon as possible on the rates. So I just wanted to make this point. I think a lot of the, the uh, 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 issues that were raised by those that focus on the tax proposals or have expertise in the tax area has also been to deal with expenditure issues. I think that Edgar has dealt with them, but I think they have a particular perspective and perhaps the underlying point is if we don't get spending efficiency, it impacts on tax morality. And so the whole discussion on tax becomes uh, not just politicized, but becomes quite heated because people see it from how are you spending the money? So I think those issues are always important on the tax side and, and getting tax morality, and I've heard the commissioner say this, uh, you know, we want most taxpayers to be our compliant and not trying to avoid their taxes. And if, the, if, the, if there isn't confidence in the tax system and that tax morality gets affected, it does have pretty uh, st uh, strong consequences for the entire tax system. Next slide, please. Chris, do you want to come in? Just to talk on the revenue estimates, there were lots of questions on the revenue estimates. Some say we were too conservative. Some say um, they are too high and there's risk uh, both ways. Uh, Elke, I don't know who's controlling the slides. Sure, thanks, Mama. Um, Good morning, Chair. Good morning, honourable members. I mean, I'll we'll get. I can see the slides also. I mean, in terms of the revenue estimates, I mean, we've kept them in line with the baseline macroeconomic projections. And um, there are a few people saying they're a little bit high in the outer years. Some people are saying they're a little bit low in the outer years. I think it reflects the amount of uncertainty that's going on at the moment. Um, commodity prices are a little bit all over the place, especially with what's happening in uh, the Ukraine. In terms of our assumptions, we haven't got any tax rate increases um, in those numbers in the future years. Um, so it's assuming that there's no changes to tax policy. Um, and we do assume quite a lot of the commodity-driven revenues fall away immediately from next year. Um, that might change if these commodity prices stay high, 
Um, um, okay, so should I share from my side? Um, okay, thanks. Let me share my screen. Um, Okay, is that screen shared? Can members see the screen? It's still loading, Chris. Yeah, we can see it now, Chris. Okay, great, thanks. So <clears throat> the big question is, what do we do with those revenue projections over the years? Um, and we've assumed quite a lot of the commodity price-driven revenues fall away um, in the next year. If they stay high, we will get hopefully get additional revenues in the future years, but we've had to assume a bit of that falls away um, in line with our projections on what the commodity prices will be. I think it's quite evident that the rebuilding of SARS has really had a positive impact on revenue, and that really has helped as well, and compliance has, has been driven up. And so the overall uh, revenues over the outer years have been increased compared to the medium-term budget policy statement. So we have seen this shift upwards, um, just not as much as it would be if we assume this commodity uh, price story would continue. If we go to the tax policy approach, um, we've had broad support for tax policy decisions in the 2022 budget. Um, we didn't increase revenue uh, tax rates. We provide, we didn't change um, the general fuel levy or the RAF levy. We gave a bit of personal income tax relief. We restructured the corporate income tax system. Um, there's been agreement that we shouldn't let the commodity revenue continue permanently. Um, the Financial and Fiscal Commission agreed with our general approach of broadening the base and not uh, lowering and not increasing tax rates to try and generate additional revenue. There have been also a lot of other comments on specific policies that um, go for one side or the other. For example, we should be increasing taxes on those with higher incomes and introducing a wealth tax. Other commentators saying we shouldn't um, increase tax rates and the tax burden is already quite high. There have been commentators saying we should increase the health promotion levy, almost double it, while others are saying um, we shouldn't have made an adjustment for inflation. Um, and there have been some requests for consultation. Um, there's some slides on the Nugent Commission as well, which I'm sure Momo can talk to a little bit uh, later, unless you want to talk to it now, Momo. No, just go through it. We don't have too much time, so just go through this. Okay, I'll keep going. Thanks. So there was a point on tax to GDP and whether we have this target of 25%. We don't have a target of 25% of GDP for a tax to GDP. Um, the you know the decisions on what tax needs to be done needs to be made uh, according to the current environment as well as what the expenditure requirements are. And there are also some technical things on there which we've included in the next show. There were some calls that the ETR should be reviewed. Um, one commentator said it should be discontinued as it's shown no impact. I mean, the last study we did, we went to NEDLAC and we went through the Standing Committee of Finance as well, um, which showed that there was a small but positive impact. And then it was actually on NEDLAC's recommendation that it was extended for 10 years. We've also got a lot more detail on the research in the next year. Um, on the tax rates, on the rich and the wealthy, we've done quite a lot of tax rate increases in the past few years. We've got a new higher rate of tax. We've got higher dividends tax rates, capital gains tax rates, estate duty rates. So we've been pushing all of those up for quite a few years. And then we weren't getting the revenue we thought we were getting. In the budget this year, we put in a chart to show that, you know, what happened when we increased the top rate to 45%. And actually, we didn't get as much revenue as we thought at all. You know, we thought we would make about 4.4 billion, but actually we saw that 
taxpayers reduce their taxable income by quite a substantial amount to try and avoid paying that tax. And that's the problem with some of these um, tax rate increases on the top. We did include a measure there to say that um, taxpayers must now declare their assets in their returns. And that is in line with the Davis Tax Committee recommendation so that we can get an idea of the structure of wealth holdings in the country. And then we can assess um, those wealth positions and, and look at potential options. Um, personal income tax adjustments adjusted for inflation, they were fine. There were also concerns about the other monetary thresholds. We said we will review that this year to provide more detail. On corporate income tax, you know, there's some quite a few people saying this is just a benefit to businesses because it's a one percent reduction, one percentage point reduction in the rate. And why are we reducing it? It's it's not. It's a restructuring of the system. So we're reducing the rate, but we're also broadening the base so that there's no impact on revenue. Um, and I'll show it in the next slide. Um, but it's, you know, corporate income tax really is one of the most distortionary taxes. You know, and this structure is to try and make ourselves more competitive globally so that we can really try and compete for investments with the lower headline tax rate and get some companies to pay more tax in terms of if they are using too much debt um, or if they're using, if they've got a lot of assessed losses. Um, in terms of the impacts, there were questions about what's the sectoral impact. We've got that in the next slide. And the effective date, <clears throat> there were some concerns that last year we were saying um, it was going to be delayed. And I think if you look at the documentation that we put in our legislative response document last year, we didn't say it will be delayed. We said that we could see some of the rationale for why commentators said it should be delayed, but it's up to the Minister of Finance. And it always is up to the Minister of Finance. And we went ahead with this to give policy certainty but, but and because Chris, commodities are doing quite well and companies are doing Chris, quite well. Yes, Chris, but just to be clear, we did say it would take effect this year when Minister Mbukmani made his uh, budget speech last year. What you're referring to is when we were doing the tax laws and we had to give effect to it, that some got the impression that there would be a delay. But this was in line with what uh, the Minister of Finance last year had announced. So there was policy yeah. continuity, yeah. Yes, that's right. Thanks. So it was just in terms of the one comment made about, yes, um, in the legislative process, commentators thought it would be delayed. But it's in line with the previous minister's statement, so it's continuing what the previous minister's announcement. If we look at the sectoral impact on this corporate income tax, which was asked in one of the questions, if you look at that top line, I wonder if I can get a pointer here. If you look at this top line, this is the total impact on revenue, and you can see that there's no impact from our um, estimations. And then this is the impact on the different sectors. So if you look at agriculture, actually overall, they should get a net benefit. Manufacturing, they should get a net benefit. Transport, community, construction should all get a net benefit. There will be a small increase in taxes for finance, wholesale and retail trade, electricity and mining and quarrying, which is a sector that's doing very well um, at the moment. So this restructuring is across the different sectors, there'll be these small adjustments in tax for everybody on aggregate. You can see, you know, there's a one percentage point reduction in the CIT rate, but here the impact is varies from 0.4% to sort of 0.3%. So I hope that's helpful to give some context. And then Moma, I don't know if you want to talk about the business loan take up and the others. Thanks. Yeah. Bukila, are you here? Do you want to talk through this? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. Thank you. And and apologies for some of the background noise. There's some drilling uh, next door. Um, but uh, we thought it was maybe very uh, useful to take the committee very briefly through 
Um, the, the first loan guarantee scheme highlights as well as explain how the uh, measures to support um, business bounce back announced by the minister and the president uh, would, would operate at a, at a high level. Um, it's worth noting that the, that the initial business support mechanisms uh, that the government rolled out had two dimensions. They had a regulatory and um, fiscal dimension. Most of the work done to support small businesses through the, the pandemic were through regulatory measures. And that totaled about um, 250 billion rand in, in restructuring. Th this allowed um, businesses to um, put off interest payments for existing liabilities. As a complementary mechanism, um, the loan guarantee scheme um, was aimed at um, ensuring that businesses still had access to, to credit. And together, these two, these two mechanisms uh, pr provided what we consider as, as significant uh, support and, and relief to, to businesses through, through the worst periods of, of the pandemic. We're now clearly at a, at a different phase of the recovery with uh, some reopening. And the, the, that, that has precipitated a, um, a, a new mechanism uh, aimed at facilitating uh, the, the bounce back for um, existing businesses uh, and uh, particularly SMEs uh, as, as the economy reopens. We, we are contemplating two mechanisms here again. One is a uh, loan um, mechanism of, of around about 15 billion rand, uh, a guarantee mechanism of about 15 billion rand, as well as, well as a slightly smaller um, uh, equity-linked mechanism, which will be introduced um, slightly later. There are a little bit more operational complexities around um, the, the equity scheme, and, and that's why it will be introduced um, a little bit later. Uh, we are in the final stages of, of planning and, and, and finalizing the legal agreements relating to the to the first component, and we hope that the we expect rather that the mechanism will be operational um, by the end of the month. Uh, let me stop there. Chair, I'll just take over. So, just to conclude on the text questions, there is a slide. There are further slides. Uh, in what we call the Anatia, that provides a lot more detail on some of the questions that were asked. Um, but I wanted to make the point, I think one of the questions was um, the implementation of the Nugent Commission's proposals. I think, cut a long story short, we've said many of those, some of the most significant of those have already been implemented. However, some require legislative changes, particularly those related to the governance over SARS. And we were going to, uh, um, we, we have committed to bringing in some legislative changes later this year. Uh, given that Judge Zondo has also commented on, um, on, on, on SARS uh, the, and, and the president's commitment that we would, that government will respond in June, we, we, we kind of, trying to align the two processes, but we're hoping that, um, well, I'm, I'm not sure what the further two months delay that the commission has been granted, I think uh, takes uh, the response of government perhaps a bit later, but we're hopeful that it won't be too late for us to introduce amendments later this year, but we do so as part of the broader government process. Chair, I'll stop there. As I said, there's many other uh, slides that we have in our next year. We won't go through those. But we'd be very happy to come to the committee and make a more detailed presentation on the tax and financial sector issues uh, if the committee were to invite us. Thank you, Chair.
Okay, thanks. Uh, back to the DJ. Are you done from your side? So that we can. I, I, I don't know if the DJ and the, or Edgar want to conclude. No, we're, we're done, uh, Chair. Uh, we can hand over to the Commissioner with your with your permission, according to your uh, uh, okay. schedule. But we're done. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Commissioners, Kaysworth, over to you. Thank you, Chair, um, and thank you for the opportunity to engage. Um, if I can, if the host can just allow me uh, sharing rights so that I can share my presentation, please. Um, I just did, Commissioner, you can share your presentation. Thank you. So, Chair, there was quite an extensive um, range of issues that relates to SARS that came up. Uh, we've prepared, I'm joined by um, a small team of SARS executives, uh, should we need um, to, uh, to go into questions that arises from it. Um, and in the interest of time, I will quickly run through all the slides uh, happy to return to any of this, um, and I just request the committee to indulge um, as I go through these slides uh, and that we have enough time to engage. So we have listened, we have heard, um, and uh, as always, we welcome feedback and welcome the opportunity to be held to account. Um, we continue to remind ourselves that the work we do is privileged um, and it has a transformative impact uh, on our young democracy. We also, uh, Chair, um, as you will know, are busy with a journey of rebuilding SARS um, and in doing so, uh, creating a system of voluntary compliance, um, but not just restoring SARS to the, what it's known as its former glory, but rather to ensure that SARS is relevant, uh, a modern organization that is required today. Chair, one of the things that I think gives rise to many of the questions that were raised is this continuous balance for SARS between managing risk to the fiscus on the one hand and taxpayer service on the other. And we cannot sit here and tell you that we have perfected that. I think we have improved significantly, but we have a lot of work in this regard. And, and, and this is where greater use of data and enabling technologies, artificial intelligence will help us we simply cannot work through the large volumes of work, of returns, of data, uh, applying only uh, human effort. Um, I want to just give the assurance that we regard one instance of service failure as one too many. We've also used COVID-19 not to disrupt our reform, but rather to accelerate our reform. And hopefully you will get that sense when you listen to some of the, the feedback I share with you but we definitely have to step up our modernization efforts and accelerate uh, our fast track, our ability to learn. You, many of you have seen this before, but our work is very clearly guided by nine strategic objectives, which together forms a systemic approach rather than a transactional approach to the work we do. And so many of the questions that have been raised are not disconnected from each other. They are all embedded in the work we do, giving effect to these nine objectives. I'm not going to go through them. You've seen this before. 
I am, however, going to zoom in on a few of them. So for example, our first two strategic objectives, which is about giving greater clarity and certainty to taxpayers and making it easier for honest taxpayers to comply, um, that results in a significant body of work by SARS. In, in as far as providing certainty and clarity, we can never do enough. But what have we done? We have, in the last year to date, we've conducted uh, 13 webinars, in, in some instances per session, drawing up to 16,000 viewers, covering areas of home office expenses, especially since that was a, a, a focus area in remote work. Uh, we've had 219,000 unique hits um, on, the, on the, what we have published on our website, uh, and a number of areas where we have conducted these webinars, these webinars continue to be, to, uh, be available to taxpayers post the event. We've also uh, completed and issued 19 interpretive documents. This would be uh, guidance, uh, interpretation notes, rulings, et cetera. Uh, and we need to deepen our capability to step up this body of work. Um, in terms of other education and awareness activities, our website has had almost 60 million hits um, and, and this is good news, uh, but it also puts on us the incumbent to, to use this opportunity to provide greater certainty and clarity to taxpayers. Um, and then, of course, we cannot do this on our own. So we work with a number of other government agencies uh, to empower them uh, in many instances to assist them uh, to give effect to the overall mandate of government in serving society. Coming to service of taxpayers, just for completeness, uh, SARS currently has 58 uh, contact center agents and just over a thousand branch service agents who collectively receive 2.8 million inbound calls, make almost 7 million outbound calls, attend to 1.2 tax million uh, taxpayer service sessions by appointment which would be a combination of video appointments, in-person branch appointments, and telephonic appointments. And we've introduced and stepped up these virtual appointments in response to COVID, but it also is part of modernizing SARS in the way we want to engage in the future, less and less in person and physical, and more and more self-help and online. Um, but we also uh, have 600 branch visits where taxpayers have no appointments, this is obviously disruptive, uh, but we never send taxpayers away. The result is we have long unmanageable and often undignified queues, but in an attempt to service taxpayers, we don't send them away. But we also have conducted almost 400 sessions, virtual sessions to assist taxpayers filing throughout your e-file. This is a functionality where the agent sees exactly the slide that the um, taxpayer sees um, and, and mirrors that uh, slide and therefore can help them complete it. The, in terms of service, we've also uh, worked hard to simplify the taxpayer experience for individuals. And uh, again, this was stepped up during COVID. Uh, 3.4 million taxpayers who were initially selected for auto-assessment. This is a functionality where we use third-party data and machine learning and artificial intelligence to complete the assessment on behalf of an individual. And nine out of 10 taxpayers 
will have accepted the auto-assessment as being correct. They didn't object to it. They didn't edit it. Um, uh, and a million of them uh, were, were, did not respond and were issued with a, um, uh, an assessment estimate. Uh, and if they do not object or appeal, that is then their final assessment. Included in this is about a half a million taxpayers who are actually not required to file. They are habitual branch filers, um, but they potentially have an expectation of a refund. In this regard, there was no effort required by them. It was a seamless experience um, and their assessment was completed. We've also had a number of taxpayers whom we had to exclude from this offering because either their status changed to provisional taxpayers or they uh, claimed home office expenses and I'll come back to that in a moment. From the entire population of 5.3 million returns, of this year, 93% of taxpayers would have received an assessment in under five seconds. 85% of them would have received their refunds in 72 hours. And we have already paid out 19 billion in refunds uh, to 1.6 million, 67 million taxpayers. So chair and members, there is overwhelming evidence that the majority of taxpayers receive a pleasant if not a seamless experience uh, from taxpayers. But we do have significant challenges and we, we have to take that head on uh, because we have an obsession with providing the best possible service and we are on a continuous, a path of continuous improvement. And whilst most of our service consultants are honest, they're competent, they're professional, they're hardworking, we still have too many instances of poor service experience by our own staff. And this we are currently address, addressing. And then we have to invest into the modernization of our service platform. It is urgent. It results in a number of service failures. Um, instances of complaints are unacceptably high in too many cases for our own liking. And for various reasons, partly by us and partly by taxpayers, we take more than 21 days to resolve uh, some cases. Uh, we can do better at managing expectations, at reporting progress, and therefore preventing a call or a visit. Um, and taxpayers without appointments, as I said, they do provide uh, us with planning challenges, um, but we never send them away. We try to help them. Um, and our call rate is unmanageable. Um, you've seen the, the, the number of calls we have to field. Uh, and sadly, this does result in unacceptably long waiting times and even dropped calls when taxpayers calls. What are we doing to improve the service? Chair, we really aspire and, and, and members to the concept of the best service is no service. So in other words, this is not about improving our queue management system, but removing the need for a taxpayer to come to the branch and to queue in the first place. It is not about shortening the waiting time to have a call. It is about fixing the system so that it is unnecessary for a taxpayer to make the call in the first place. And so this is the journey uh, that we have embarked on. Included in that is embedding a culture of service um, in our, with, among our staff, um, and that is hard work. Um, continuing to invest and develop our own staff, disintermediate the need for many of these service interventions, as I said earlier, and improve 
our engagement and communication with taxpayers. Uh, yeah, we let ourselves down sometimes by not managing this well. Uh, we have this year also stepped up the deployment of self-service terminals um, to go beyond our own current branch footprint and make it more available uh, to taxpayers in remote areas. Um, our AI-driven interactivity, the use of interactive voice responses, of chatbots, of taxpayer caller, is part of our modernization program. We have to make a significant uh, investment. Our contact center technology is still uh, not uh, relevant to the demands of present time. We also have this year uh, started to step up uh, allowing taxpayers to engage with us through what we call no, non-smart phones or the regular SMS communication to get their tax numbers, to ask for progress, etc. Previously, only smartphones and handheld devices were used. A huge effort to migrate uh, taxpayers to online service channels. Just doing that, we have disintermediated in the last two years or so, six million previous branch interactions. These taxpayers now engage with us digitally or through our online offerings. We have also begun the, the recruitment and development of 250 additional service consultants um, and uh, reviewing and stepping up subject to uh, funding the modernization of our entire administrative system across the value chain towards our vision of a smart modern SARS. In terms of strategic objective three, four things matter for us here. One, our ability to, um, I see that the, the slide, there we go. Uh, three, four things matter to us in this objective. The first is developing the capability to detect an instance of non-compliance and then a response that makes it hard and costly. And chair and, 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 and honorable members, here we make no apology that for dishonest or non-compliant taxpayers, they will have a different experience that makes it hard and costly. We have to deter non-compliance, especially in a country that ours, where we have seen a proliferation of criminal and corrupt activities. We are the vanguard, the last uh, line of defense uh, for taxpayers uh, to ensure government uh, receives its tax monies due to it. In doing that, we have to balance risk to the fiscus with service to taxpayers and improve the resolution of taxpayers where there are disputes and there will always be disputes because people come from different vantage points um, and have different uh, inter interpretations. Uh, but that's the reason why our dispute resolution and ultimately the courts are there. So in that regard, what have we done? In respect of VAT risk management, which is a huge area of, of concern. Um, again, the slides seem to be slow. Um, we have year to date, Chair, received 3.8 million VAT returns, which were processed as follows. Almost three and a half million of them were resolved through our automated risk assessment using data and machine learning algorithms. In other words, there is no human intervention and those assessments are done almost instantaneously. 
only 320,000 or fewer than, or just about eight out of every 100 returns that we process have been selected by our risk engine, not by us, by our risk engine for further verification. So there's no opinion, SARS opinion here in who is selected. The claim that we bully the little man and we allow the, the, the bigger entities to go, um, that is not borne out by the evidence. Our risk engine is agnostic to who the taxpayer is and responds only to the risk rules and the algorithms that we write. And so you are selected for verification, not because you're a little guy or a big guy, but because you are a risk to the fiscus, potentially non-compliant, and maybe even criminal. And in other words, 92% of the returns we have processed without intervention. That is a significant portion of the universe. Eight out of 10 selected for verification. Just over half of these cases, we have completed producing compliance revenue of almost 15 billion. This is 15 billion that would not be in the coffers of state had we not do this work. And of those that we have completed, three out of every four have been completed within 21 days. It is noteworthy that more than half of the cases selected by our risk engine comes from habitual non-compliant taxpayers. And if they complain, then one understands why they complain. Uh, but they have been correctly identified and uh, drawn attention to themselves. And this work will continue. In addition, 138 VAT cases of the prior year were completed this year, yielding compliance revenue of 21.5 billion, meaning that the total compliance revenue due to our VAT risk management for this current year is 36 billion year to date. That compares to only 26 billion last year. And so you can see this is both a reflection of greater focus by SARS, but also maybe greater non-compliance by taxpayers. Um, and in addition, we have secured 54 successful criminal prosecutions for VAT contraventions. When we get to uh, personal income tax risk, again, um, if I allow the, the presentation just to catch up, um, I'll start talking to this. Here, Chair and Honorable Members, we have received um, over 7.1 million uh, individual tax returns, which we have processed as follows. 5.7 million of them have been resolved through our automated risk assessment using data and machine learning algorithms, which means that we do not touch this. It is completely resolved using artificial intelligence. 1.4 million, or just short, just short of 20% of these cases, are selected not by us, but by our risk engine for further verification. In other words, 80 out of every 100 returns, PIT returns, are processed without any intervention or uh, time delay by SARS. Of the 20 of every 100 that we select, more than eight of these, out of 10 out of these cases, in other words, 
80% of those selected for verification are completed with a compliance revenue of 8.2 billion, and 85% of them have been completed within 21 working days. Noteworthy, more than two thirds or 66% of cases selected by our risk engine, again, comes from habitual non-compliance, which means that our risk engine is spot on when it selects a taxpayer for compliance. In addition, 369,000 cases of last year yielded a further revenue of 1.3 billion, meaning a total revenue yield from the PIT risk management work is a total of nine and a half billion compared to last year's 7.9 billion. Again, revenue which not be in the coffers had we not done this work. We've also secured 39 successful criminal prosecutions in PIT. But as we said earlier on, we do not claim victory and we certainly have a long way to go. Um, so whilst we are encouraged by the progress we have made, just by our own standards, we are not living up to it yet. And so what are we doing to improve further as part of our continuous improvement culture? One, we are working hard to increase and expand our data sets so that we can be more comprehensive. We are deepening our data science capability. Um, uh, one of the authors of, of uh, um, you know, uh, I think it's your, uh, what's his name, who writes the 21 uh, uh, changes of the future, says, given enough data and a powerful enough computer, we can tell you more about you than you know yourself. And so this may be said tongue in cheek, but it is absolutely a fact that we cannot do our work without using technology, artificial intelligence and data. And so this work will allow us to refine our risk engine further, to make more use of machine learning algorithms, artificial and augmented intelligent technologies, to enhance this risk profiling capability better, and to improve the balance between managing risk and providing excellent service. And this is a journey which will, will improve and mature over time. We also, secondly, must enhance our engagement with taxpayers so that we provide greater clarity and greater certainty. We own this, we can do more, and to improve the quality and timing of our communication with taxpayers. Just a, an important uh, uh, um, observation uh, that I can share. In verification taxpayers, uh, uh, honorable chair and members, we have only 163 VAT auditors who have resolved over 308,000 cases, and we have only 274 PIT verification auditors who have resolved over 1.362 million cases. Clearly, we are understaffed. We need more staff just in this area of work. So subject to funding by National Treasury, we will continue to invest in our current verification auditors we will recruit additional auditors, and we will continue to scope and implement on a fast track basis, the modernization of our VAT processing, uh, introducing aspects such as e-invoicing, 
uh, and to be more present at a point of sale. Uh, and clearly all of this is incumbent on the level of funding provided to South African Revenue Service. I want to just highlight one specific risk that was introduced during COVID and what our observations were there. Here to date, we have received more than 76,000 returns where individual taxpayers have claimed home office expenses. Of course, we now have more remote work. And unfortunately, some taxpayers have taken a chance to see if they can um, make an impermissible claim. And again, we have had to tailor our risk rules to look at this. Our risk engine stopped almost 66,000 of the 76,000 uh, claims, or 86% of those claims. About 79% of these that have been selected have been completed, and to date, an adjustment rate of 60.4% uh, 60 of these claims have been adjusted, yielding 545 million rand. In terms of the actual home offices expenses claim, there was a total claim against this um, line item of 2.9 billion. When we flag this, about 3,300 taxpayers to date changed their mind. They submitted a correction and they said, sorry, you can remove that from us. Uh, we no longer want you to consider it. Just that yielded a value of 334 million. In total, our verification work resulted in 1.8 billion of the 2.9 billion claims uh, to be disallowed, meaning that the actual home office expenses claim, which we will allow, uh, will only be 1.1 billion. So you can see just one area of work, which if we don't put a laser focus on it, will cost the fiscus almost 2 billion rand. So none of the work we do, uh, Chair, I'd like to argue, is unjustified, whilst at the same time, we are striving hard to get a better balance between risk and service. In respect of litigation or dispute resolution, which is the fourth aspect on, 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 uh, on this, under this objective, we clearly endeavor to resolve disputes through engagement rather than litigation. But we will obviously afford every taxpayer the right to litigate. And in, in certain instances, for strategic reasons, we may choose to litigate to set legal precedent. Almost 85% of all tax court appeals have been finalized through engagement between the taxpayer and SARS, which is positive. 25% <clears throat> of these appeals were settled. 29% of them were withdrawn by taxpayers and about an equal amount were withdrawn by SARS. So a productive, healthy engagement yielding uh, um, certainty for taxpayers and SARS. But sometimes litigation is unavoidable and we litigate approximately 10% of tax court appeals. And of these, to date, we have won 21 out of 28 cases, including every appeal that we have made to the Constitutional Court and the Supreme Court of Appeal. We also litigate to enforce compliance. And in the past two years, we have had a success rate of around about 
The last strategic objective I would like to cover, uh, uh, Honorable Chair and members, is our strategic objective number eight. Here, it is our acknowledgement that we, are, we cannot do this on our own. We need to work with intermediaries. And, inter, and, and a very important intermediary in this regard is the tax, pay, the tax practitioner and all of them regulated through the various RCBs, uh, many of whom are part of this public platform. I have to share that again, while SARS may drop the ball in this regard, uh, in some instances, we have to point out, we have 25,000 tax practitioners on our register. 47 of them were deregisters in this current year due to them being non-compliant in their own tax affairs. Now you can imagine someone who should be held, who holds a position of trust and who should be held to a higher level of accountability themselves are not compliant. And we really appeal to the registered controlling bodies to help us in this regard. 1.3 billion of outstanding debt from three, from almost 4,000 tax practitioners in, and as well as 3,762 outstanding returns. Our current compliance indicators suggest that 77% of tax practitioners file on time, 21% of them file late, and 2% don't even bother to file. In terms of payment compliance, 89% of them pay on time, 6% pay late, and 5% don't pay at all. And this requires enforcement. So just a flavor of what we're doing and responding comprehensively, Chair, to many of the issues that were raised. I hope that uh, the committee and the audience finds it insightful. And therefore, I would like to conclude by saying, uh, honorable members, Chair, and members of the public, and members who represent uh, the society, we welcome the feedback from all stakeholders. And we assure you that we endeavor to respond with a seriousness that every item of feedback deserves. We own every instance of service failure. We are encouraged by the progress we've made and we remain committed within the available resources to continue the rebuilding of SARS. It will take time. It is relentless, it is hard work, but we will give the best effort that we can to ensure this because we realize how important this work is. Chair, if we have any frustration, it is to say that everything in government is hard. It takes too long and the environment isn't always enabling. And I can spend a day with you on sharing this frustration, but this is not the moment for it. Thank you for the opportunity to engage and most, most sincerely, thank you for your support always. Uh, thanks, uh, Commissioner. Uh, thanks, uh, National Treasury, led by the DG. I'm not sure if the Deputy Minister has joined. Uh, let's now move to item three in our agenda. Uh, comments from participants at the meeting of the 2nd March 2022. Uh, five minutes each, which is 45 minutes. So. Is from now until 
11 o'clock. So stakeholders will be making comments or asking questions. Uh, you are allocated exactly five minutes. Uh, then let's start with the fiscal cliff study group. Over to you, uh, five minutes. Uh, Dr. Yumer will speak today on behalf of the Fiscal Study Group, Chair. Thank you. No, okay. uh, thank you very much, Chair, and uh, thank you again to all the, um, the speakers from uh, both Treasury and SARS for the really insightful presentations and information uh, provided. Um, Chair, just in general, um, what we again see is especially on the, the outlook of the, um, the budget itself, I want to speak about the Debt to GDP ratios there, um, and we we see from the presentation uh, by Treasury uh, the sort of uh, lower than previously expected debt to GDP ratios, which is welcomed. Uh, but then from the outer years, especially 25, uh, 2025, 2026, there onwards, we they talk about stabilization and decline in those debt to GDP ratios. And as always, it just remains a bit confusing to us if we continue to run. A relatively large budget deficit. Uh, how will that actual stabilization uh, come into play? So, just some you're gonna uh, again some some technical questions on how how is that actually going to happen? And we are just a bit afraid if these forecasts are not correct. You know, uh, then South Africa continues to to head in the wrong direction as far as those ratios are concerned. Otherwise, just uh, we also made it in our submission, um, Chair. It's about just uh, additional clarity. We already we really welcome the clarity clarity that is provided in the the budget and the budget documents, uh, but especially we we asked for that list of all state-owned entities. Um, and I see in the the presentation by National Treasury they already uh, pointed us towards the PFMA schedules on the the Treasury website. So thank you for that. We uh, we will take a look at that. And uh, as always, any additional information on these SOEs will be welcomed given their large risk to the, to the fiscus in general. Then also just two other, again, for clarity, uh, just if we can get more details on the calculations related to the scenery sharing agreement in the common uh, monetary area. We know that South Africa pays a relatively large amount of money for that. So again, just clarity on exactly how this is calculated. Uh, and then lastly, on the, the SACU agreements, again how the the calculations of that the revenue sharing agreements work and the treasury's projections on that again it takes up a relatively large part uh, as i understand it's calculated in our revenue figures so uh, chair thank you that's that's all from our side and uh, we did uh, make our uh, the, the rest of our comments is in the, the submission thank you chair uh, thanks very much, uh, Stephanas, and also for being economic with time. Uh, you only use the three minutes. Thanks very much <clears throat> for that. Uh, the next one is South African Institute of uh, uh, Chartered uh, Accountant. Uh, who is that? Is it Sharon? Yes, hi. You don't Thank have you. to remind that about time. You even know the rules of this <laughs> committee, Sharon. <laughs> I do. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Honourable Chair, and thank you to, to all the presenters today. Once again, we really appreciate the input and, and the communication and, and the feedback 
uh, for the questions that we raised. I'm going to start off with National Treasury. And, and again, I just want to say in the main, we don't agree. Uh, we do definitely agree with the National Treasury plan. Um, as you mentioned, though, the concern comes in on the assumptions that the actual expenditure will be executed correctly and the way that it is planned. And that's where everything falls short. And that's been falling short consistently. You've talked about you're saying we are talking about structural constraints, regulatory constraints. What we're doing is we're talking about them and we're not implementing them. And I think that's, again, the crux that we have. But going back to the revenue side, which is very important to ensure that we actually can cover the expenditure, at least to a certain degree, with, with what we promised. Um, we look forward to your uh, tax GDP uh, estimations. You said it's in the annexure, so I'll have a look at that. Um, so again, the 25% is, is not here or there, but it, it's the actual calculation of that tax GDP ratio. And the concern is with the tax revenue increases that we're seeing are, are proposed, those are above inflation um, and also more importantly, um, above the uh, tax elasticity. And the concern is GDP is not growing. And, and if we don't see that, I still don't understand where these tax revenue uh, increases are going to come if it's not in the form of tax increases. Um, Again, just on the expenditure side, you know, government and it's it's parliament. Parliament has to start enforcing proper expenditure. Uh, we cannot have budgets going through when we know the expenditure is not happening. We've got budgets that are be being given, but 30, 30 to 40% of the expenditure is or the um, actual activities are taking place. And this cannot carry on. Should you, we should stop that, that money going to these departments where they're not in any case doing the work and allocate that money somewhere else where it can be used productively. Um, going back to your point on, on the revenue collection, you referred to SARS is critical in collecting this, and I'll move then on to that. The, the, the trust in SARS is very important, um, as, you, as you've heard. Uh, if there is no trust, it reduces tax compliance, and we cannot afford that. We need these revenue collections. Um, and we agree 100% with the Commissioner, and we support further funding for SARS. They need it. I mean, just from the stats that the Commissioner presented to us, you can clearly see that they need more money to assist them with qualified personnel to actually assist the taxpayers in the concerns that we have. Because bearing in mind what we're seeing on the ground, and, and although we note the promises, and the promises have been coming for a long time, and we know things take time in government to change, but on the ground, taxpayers are experiencing huge frustrations. Um, and it is because we understand there is not enough staff, et cetera, not enough money to, to improve the technology, but taxpayers are really struggling. Um, just to give you some examples, um, the refund payouts, again, you know, we keep getting um, complaints about refunds, that, particularly that refunds not being paid out timelessly. And, and I get your stats, uh, Commissioner, but it, it's the other 25% that are, are not getting the refunds. And I'd like to see the amounts of the refunds that are being paid out because it's, it's really the small businesses and not only them. We're getting complaints from the bigger businesses as well that from a cash flow perspective, they are really, really struggling and it's putting their businesses at risk. Linked to that is, you know, when you have a debt settlement, you apply for, um, you know, a settlement of debt. Somehow your systems are not linked. They cannot get tax clearance certificate. That prevents them from getting further businesses. Just yesterday, again, I got a complaint for that. And it, it's really affecting the SMEs. Um, the other thing is your virtual appointments, the call center. We note the numbers that you, you put there, but it's really affecting compliance uh, because they can't get through to somebody that can actually assist them. 
Um, on the uh, disputes, um, and you talked about the appeals, um, the concern that I have here with we didn't get any dispute figures because the disputes and the appeals actually start in the objection phase. And I think this all goes back to verifications, which you did mention. However, the verifications have huge ramifications for, for taxpayers um, because that they take longer than there's no time limit for them. Taxpayers are submitting their documentation, yet there's, there's no, no traction. Uh, they do then eventually get some information, get an assessment, they object. And the objections is where our concern comes in. And we'd like to see stats on that because a lot of the objections are just not being sorted out. And if we look at the tax ombuds report, it was a systemic issue raised back two, three years ago, where the objections mostly are found in favor of the taxpayer. And we again question, and this might be because you don't have the skilled staff, et cetera, but they are found in favor of the taxpayer. So we're spending a lot of unnecessary time, both from SARS and the tax taxpayer side to try and dispute objections that actually should never have landed up um, in an objection. Um, so yeah, I think that that's the whole bottom on the ground. People are struggling. We fully support further funding for SARS. They need it. It's critical to our country to ensure that we collect tax revenue, that we let businesses continue trading and continue focusing on, on job creation, not on trying to be tax compliant and sort out tax matters that, that shouldn't have been an issue in the first place. Um, Commissioner, you mentioned that things take too long in government. Parliament, you also mentioned that it, you guys can change this. Parliament, you have the choice to change this. Let's get the policy sorted out. Let's get the implementation of these policies sorted out. Let's not have commissions, et cetera. Let's just start doing what we need to get done. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Sharon. Uh, we're economic with time, exactly five minutes. Uh, I got an apology from uh, South African Institute of Taxation. Uh, the rep has got uh, another engagement. I think it's family related. And then uh, let's move to Price Waterhouse uh, Coopers. Uh, over to you, who's in the platform. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Um, yeah, Carl Mayer here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah you follow the rules very well, Kyle. Yourself, Sharon, uh, Comrade Ma, uh, from the Cosato, Matthews, and others. You know the rules very well. Over to you. Five minutes, you will time yourself. Thank you, thank you, Chair. I shouldn't even take the five minutes, to be honest. Um, maybe just a, a few observations from my side. Um, firstly, uh, you know, thank, thank you to Treasury for the feedback um, and to SAS, of course. Um, you know, it's, a, it's always valuable and well-received. Um, as I say, just a few observations from my side um, in response to, 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 to Treasury's feedback. Um, on the revenue forecasting side of things, um, maybe just to, to, to acknowledge uh, what Treasury said, particularly looking at the outer two years of the medium term, um, I think we've been very clear from our perspective that there are, there are a huge number of uncertainties when it comes to the forecasting of that. Um, it, uh, it's essentially a crystal ball gazing exercise, and we really don't have any any concerns with the uh, with the revenue projections that uh, that Treasury has in respect of those years. Um, in so far as the current year, which is where our primary concern lies, if you like, that uh, we, where we have suggested that there's an uh, there, there's a a likely underestimate. Um, you know, we obviously stand by our views insofar as that's concerned. Um, and it remains to be seen what happens, uh, I guess, at the end of this month in terms of what the final results are. Um, but we certainly do expect that we're going to, to see a significantly better performance 
than the 182 billion rand um, surplus that uh, the Treasury has indicated. Um, and, and that uh, you know, translates into next year. As you said, we believe that, uh, that Treasury has been conservative uh, in terms of its estimates for next year. Um, and we've also been very clear that, um, you know, in our view, the prudent ap approach that they've adopted uh, insofar as that's concerned is understandable given the risks that, they, that exist, particularly insofar as commodity prices are concerned. Um, we also don't know, you know um, well, since the budget, uh, we, we've now got the Ukraine, Ukraine situation that's unfolded. We don't know exactly what the impact of that is going to be um, on, on the global and local economy um, and what uh, and obviously what the impact of that might then ultimately be on revenues as well. So, you know, in, in the circumstances, we, we agree with the conservative approach. The, the only question you can ask is whether we've been too conservative um, or whether we should be slightly more positive insofar as those revenues forecasts are concerned. Um, on the corporate tax rate reductions, um, maybe just the... the uh, obviously, it's, it's very clear that uh, the Treasury's intent now is to is to uh, implement that um, as was announced in in last year's budget. So effectively, the same effect of that. Um, you know, the, the timing is not ideal. Um, yes, you can certainly ask the question as to whether or not timing would ever be ideal when it comes to this uh, these base broadening measures, and particularly the assessed loss uh, base broadening measure. Just to, I think we do need to be clear on one aspect though. There's, you know, as, as I said previously, uh, when it comes to, in particular, the, the hospitality and tourism sector, they are the sector that were the hardest hit by the pandemic. And yes, you know, they've made losses. And yes, uh, the, the um, assessed loss limitations, if you like, are not an increase in the ultimate liabilities. They won't actually impact the income statements insofar as that's concerned. Um, but it does have a cash flow impact on those businesses. They have to pay taxes, which in the absence of those base, or that base bonding measure in, in particular, they would not otherwise have had to pay at, the, at this point in time. Um, as I said, it's not ideal. Uh, given that uh, hopefully they will just be returning to profitability. But the real concern lies insofar as the impact on cash flows for those businesses as they sign into recovery. Um, the last observation, maybe just in terms of the where we're going from a, from a corporate tax rate perspective, um, Treasury did loosely allude to a 25% rate, if you like, in the, in the presentation. Um, certainly haven't been explicit that that's where we're going. And we would certainly like to see Treasury being explicit as to what, what the end game is, if you like. What is the, what is the goal insofar as the, as the rate reductions are concerned? Um, and what are the other sort of base bonding measures that we have in mind uh, in order to fund those rate reductions down to whatever level it is? As we suggested, we think it should be 25% uh, should be the goal. But you know, what base mortgage measures do we have in mind as far as funding that is concerned? We know that they are considering the uh, the um, investment allowances, and, and that is going to be reviewed. But for example, are we taking into account uh, the the BEPS uh, reforms that uh, that will be implemented in the coming couple of years as well, uh, insofar as that's concerned? And what else are we considering? 
Thank you, Jack. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, let's move to the next stakeholder, uh, road, road Consulting. Thank you, Chair. One Road Consulting, thank you, Chair. Thank you to Treasury, thank you to Commissioner Kisveta for their presentations. Chair, at the last uh, Standing Committee on Finance uh, presentations last year, uh, there was a recommendation that the stakeholders, say Cyper, Saika, myself, meet with National Treasury and SARS to work out how we find a compromise to meet the same objective, and that is to keep our economy on track and for the efficient tax collection. The picture that Commissioner Kisveta painted uh, and, and presented to us is a very different picture to what Sait, Saika, Saipa, and myself are seeing. <clears throat> and that's understandable because the happy taxpayers don't come to see us. It's the unhappy taxpayers with problems that come and see us. But that is why it's important that we need to engage. We started the engagement on the 28th of May, 2021 with National Treasury. But uh, that was the first step, but we never got further on that road. We weren't able to engage together with National Treasury and SARS. And we need that engagement because we can agree to disagree on what is actually happening out there. But what we cannot disagree on is the unfettered, total, absolute power that SARS have without any moderation given to taxpayers' rights when it comes to SARS VAT audits, conduct of VAT audits, and the withholding of VAT refunds. And we've seen that not only in the withholding of VAT refunds, but also in the withholding of diesel rebate refunds, where audits can carry on forever. SARS does not believe that there is a deadline. And all the while, VAT refunds are withheld, causing terrible cash flow problems for taxpayers who have compliant VAT and tax histories. Now, Commissioner said that one case of inadequate service is unacceptable, and uh, the, constitutional, the Constitution requires that SARS carries out its duties, very important duties in a reasonable and procedurally fair manner. So for example, if there is a dispute on income tax or POY, for example, and an assessment is issued to a taxpayer, the taxpayer can approach SARS for a waiver of the pay now argue later if proper motivation is given. With regards to VAT refunds and withholding of diesel rebate refunds, there is no such moderation afforded to the taxpayer because SARS have the money and SARS don't pay you back. And these never-ending audits and the only possible solution that a taxpayer has because of the way the VAT Act and the Tax Administration Act is structured can only resort to litigation, which can take up to eight years and the cash flow implications speak for themselves. So, we ask that we have an opportunity to engage with both Treasury and the Commissioner 
to talk about the multifaceted issue that needs to be discussed, and that is the unconditional one-sided power in contravention with respect to what the Constitution requires, the one-sided rules that are available to SARS in the conduct of, of, of that audit. We have to balance that, of course, against the economic interests of the country. We have to balance that against the scourge of criminality um, in the system. And of course, uh, when, the, when, when Commissioner Kisbeter said SARS is the last line of defense, I beg to respectfully differ. The last line of defense is the criminal courts where the criminals should be taken and prosecuted. And right now, what we are seeing is that the, 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 the options available to aggrieved taxpayers who are subjected to unreasonable VAT audits requires changes in the legislation. And I've proposed those changes. I won't repeat them, but we do request and we do welcome a meeting with the commissioner and national treasury in order to find a way forward to the benefit of all. Thank you, Chair. Uh, thanks very much, Annie, uh, for your comments. And then, um, oh, what's happening to my budget now? Uh, the next one is Cosato. Comrade Matthew, over to sure. you. Sure, no, thanks very much, Chair. Um, good morning to members and to colleagues and comrades. Uh, so I think, Chair, just a few things. Um, I mean, I think for us, the critical thing around the fiscal framework and the budget is, is that, is it going to get us out of this 1.8% GDP growth trajectory? Um, is it going to reduce unemployment from 46%? Is it going to fundamentally tackle corruption, wasteful expenditure? Is it sufficient to rebuild the SOEs and local government? And to be honest, um, we don't think it is sufficient on all those fronts. I think for us, that is a fundamental problem. Um, we had hoped to hear, Chair, you know, more about specific interventions to rebuild local government, which you all know is, is in a serious crisis, um, specific interventions to rebuild the SOEs, but we don't really find it. Um, we were quite alarmed that, for example, on the post office, it plans for a 6,000 job losses or retrenchments. Um, we had hoped on the Rolex Fund a commitment by government to retabling the RAF and the, R and the RAPS bills at Parliament. Um, Chair, just on the issue of, of appropriation cuts, I mean, I hear the argument that there's no cuts in allocations, but I think there's two elements. One is that if you allocate an increase which is below inflation, so for, for example, the foster care grant, a 1.9% increase, that's below inflation. So in real terms, that is a cut. Uh, if we allocate to Department of Health a 0.2% growth and expenditure over three years. Uh, that in effect is a cut. There might be some reasons why, maybe those once-off capital expenditure is gone, et cetera, but the budget doesn't really give those kind of details, to be honest. Um, similarly with the, with the funding for DTI, a 4.8% cut over, not just below inflation, but a cut over the MTEF. Um, Chair, we were quite surprised on the presidential promise stimulus that in, the, in October in the MTBPS, Allocation was made for about 24 billion rand per annum. Um, and now it's cut to about 18 billion rand in this year. And that is a key uh, tool to help reduce unemployment, help to, to get this economy moving, et cetera. So I'm not sure why would we cut that. 
Um, we, you know, it shared as positive in the in the Sona when the president announced an additional twelve thousand police officers. But then you must take into account there will be ten thousand police officers retiring, and you must take into account that five years ago we had about one hundred ninety-seven thousand SAPS members. We're now at about one hundred seventy-eight thousand, including the twelve thousand. So, population has grown, growing by the, by about a million a year. But we're budgeting for the police force to have cut by eighteen thousand in the last five years. Um, Chair, just on the issue of the wage bill, look, I think we welcome the minister um, committing to engage with the Public Service Bargaining Council, and I think you know some allocations in the budget for some increase in the wage bill. We think that's a good start. But Chair, to be honest, government is going to have to do a lot of work to rebuild the trust. Um, unions always have to sell a wage agreement to workers as a compromise. And our workers say, well, you sign agreements. How do we know the government will actually honor the agreement? So it is going to take quite some time to rebuild that. But we hope that government would also apply the austerity measures to politicians and to senior management, especially in the SOEs. It can't make sense or be justifiable for management in the Road Traffic Infringement Agency to be earning more than the president. Um, and Chair, we think there is space and a need to have a single wage regime for national provincial government, for SOEs, et cetera. Um, Chair, I think it is quite positive, uh, the allocations to, the, to a new type of loan guarantee scheme. We hope the banks will play their part and not stifle it. Um, it's positive that Treasury is committing to table the public procurement bill this year, Parliament. But we hope it's really sufficiently enhanced so that it covers the entire state, not just the public service departments, but includes SOEs, municipalities. Uh, and we hope there won't be any further delays. Chair, I think we also need to move with great speed now that I think we've got significant consensus around a pension access bill um, to allow indebted workers, distressed workers, some access to the pensions, we need to get that done this year. And Chair, just the last two things. I think it was positive that the minister committed to reviewing the fuel price regime. Uh, we had the same commitment in 2018 by a previous minister of energy. We hope this year to be something different. Um, then I think the last thing, Chair, just around SARS, I, mean, I think we must really say that the unsung heroes of this budget has been SARS and the excellent work they have done. I think if they had not done that turnaround plan, we would be in a very different situation on many fronts. I think, Chair, so it's critical. One is to reinforce SARS further. That's an investment in the state and the economy. Chair, we also think it would be useful, since the commissioner is here, to look at utilizing the presidential employment stimulus to employ additional staff at SARS, specifically in customs enforcement, which we remain concerned that we're not doing enough to tackle huge amounts of customs fraud and customs evasion. And maybe, Chair, Chair Blasi, that we're talking about some Defence Force personnel retiring. Why don't we look at absorbing them into customs enforcement? Um, again, because it's going to generate revenue for the state and help protect local manufacturing jobs. So I think let me stop there, Chair, and thanks to, to members. Thanks, Chair. Okay. Thanks, uh, Comrade Matthew. Uh, Health Living Alliance, over to you. Five minutes. Good morning, Chair and my fellow colleagues. Um, thank you, first of all, for providing us this opportunity um, to, for the public submissions. And just to um, speak to what has been brought up by Treasury and SARS, what I'm getting from, um, from what everyone has, has said is that we, we need an increased revenue. And the HPL, is a is an opportune um it's an opportune method to do this you know um with the um, with the recommended twenty percent we could have gained an extra two billion just in this year alone of twenty twenty two 
And between 2018 and 2020, we could have potentially saved 50 million, which is money that was spent on NCDs. So with a reduced NCD rate, then we would have more money for our for fiscus to be uh, more revenue to be spent with, on other things. Um, the HPL, as recommended by the World Health Organization, to be at 20% is now more than ever needed in South Africa to help with our economic recovery. And this is very important in saving the lives of our people because the health of our people is at risk. And we this is an idea we need to strive for now more than ever. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Beth Living Alliance, and for being very economic with time. Thanks very much. Uh, Amanda Mobi. Um, thank you, Chair, and thank you to Treasury and SARS for their responses. We'd just like to speak to uh, Treasury's response to public participation platforms. Um, we welcome um, the notes that they have here about the measures they have to improve public participation, but seeing that they received only, only over 300 budget tips, that is relatively a small amount for a whole country chair. And also considering that before the budget, Amazon.mobi submitted a petition of people in support of an increase on the HPL, a 20% increase on the HPL, and these were five over 5,000 signatures. And in the submission, we clearly stated that each submission is of a person in support of uh, a 20% increase on the HPL and therefore must be treated as a budget tip. So we, we'd just like to know how, what method does Treasury use to um, consider a budget tip, a budget tip, and how does that go into influencing um, when the budget is finalized before it is tabled? And this clearly shows that Treasury has a lot of work to do to put uh, measures in place that improve that because clearly the measures that they have here aren't doing much because 300 is just a very small amount. Uh, much more people need to be participating in this process. And so we're also wondering if Treasury is intending on um, implementing or setting up a free hotline where people, any member of uh, the community can just call to give their budget tip. Um, thank you, Chair. Thanks, Tlo, uh, and uh, also thanks to have uh, young people coming to this uh, platform. Encourage more young people to come and participate on issues of parliament. Thanks very much. Um, let's move to the next one is uh, Women on Farms uh, project. Over to you. Hello. Um, good afternoon. Good morning. Um, we'd like to say thank you very much to Treasury and to the uh, the tax um, source for responding to our submissions. Um, unless I missed it, um, I did not hear the mention of the two words wealth tax. So besides Chris Axelson's comment on the wealth assets being taxed more greatly, unfortunately, neither Treasury or SARS mentioned the specific wealth tax. So on behalf of Women on Farms Project and Women Farm Workers and Dwellers in South Africa, we repeat our call for the 
implementation of a special wealth tax on the richest 1% of South Africans. We believe this tax to be reasonable, necessary, and just. At the very minimum, we would like Treasury and SARS to implement a national dialogue on the possibility and potential and viability of this wealth tax. And since I do have the ear of Treasury and SARS at the moment, I'd like to know, do you have a position on the implementation and the viability and the possibility of a special wealth tax on the richest 1% of South Africans? Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Women on Farms uh, project. Uh, you have been very economic with time. Thank you very much. And then the last one. It was one. so nerve wracking. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Uh, the last, uh, no, no. Women on Farms project, I think, was the last stakeholder. Okay. Then uh, let's move now to item four interaction by committee committees uh, sorry chair yes uh on the chart i think there's a request by pbo i don't know if you have addressed that let me see i see side i cycle on the text what is it uh, the stakeholder at Where is it going? I see there's a chart about Saika. Um, uh, so, sorry, Honorable Chair. Um, I did write a note asking if we could have a few minutes from the PBO to respond. This is Siraj speaking. Have you written here in the chat? Okay. Uh, over to you. How many minutes has Raj? Remember? Um, hopefully, uh, less than five, maybe about three minutes. I'll try and keep it very short uh, given the time uh, constraints. Thank okay. you very much for the opportunity. And again, thank you very much to National Treasury for the um, responses and I think thoughtful responses to many of the questions uh, and issues raised, not only by PBO, but also by. Um, members from the public and, and uh, so yeah we really do appreciate this opportunity and to be part of this discussion. Um, I just want to very quickly uh, respond to two I think points that I think form uh, uh, you know underlie a lot of the arguments and, and in the past we have disagreed with National Treasury on, on, on some of these issues um, the first one is uh, the National Treasury says that fiscal policy alone cannot solve the problems of inequality, poverty, and unemployment, and we agree with that. Um, but they also then move on to say that inclusive growth and economic reforms are essential, and we agree with that as well. But there's this uh, uh, push in terms of focusing on the how high debt service costs are without giving the context of the impact of fiscal consolidation on growth and the possibility of increasing revenue collection and then making that a much smaller share of, um, of debt to GDP and also a smaller share hopefully of, of uh, overall expenditure in the future. And, and, and so this, this kind of approach that comes very much from a supply side 
conservative uh, macroeconomic approach needs to take into account, I think, um, not only structural reforms, but the need for structural economic transformation, the role of uh, redistribution and, and, and changing aggregate demand uh, dynamics with the, the economy in uh, helping to support and drive uh, growth in manufacturing and in uh, success in industrial policy and things like the ACTFA. That's the first point. I hope I haven't been too long making that point. The second point is is linked to the um, it's, uh, and it's in the annex, but it, it, it's sort of a stream that runs through a discussion on fiscal policy and tax policy, and and it, it comes from the reliance on only one study looking at multipliers and the impacts of multipliers, fiscal and and tax. Um, and I did raise this in the past when this study was referenced, and I don't have a problem with the study, but I think it's important. I'll just read a very quick three lines from the first page of the study. It says, given the inherent ambiguity and the important role that model specification and identification play in final results, caution should be applied when relying on these estimates to draw concrete policy conclusions. This is by J.H. Kim, and, and he uses a structural variance at risk model in his uh, in his uh, studies on on, on uh, multipliers. Now we're not saying uh, we we agree with that. Um, and and if you look at the international literature and the literature in South Africa, there is a huge variance, and it's 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 a bit worrying that there's a reliance on one in South Africa. Um, I can point to eight studies on multiplier fix. The ones that don't use structural variance at risk methodologies actually do show bigger positive multiplier effects. And so to to make arguments in terms of that if we spend more, we're going to get smaller GDP, but also to use Kim's arguments about tax uh, as if that's the reality when he says it shouldn't be taken for, for concrete policy conclusions to then say that increasing tax will lead to smaller uh, collections and have a negative, possible negative impact on GDP, I think is also problematic. So just I just wanted to make those two points. Thank you very much for the opportunity, um, unfortunately. Thanks, uh, Dr. Mohamed. Uh, over to the honorable members. Honorable members, are there comments? Uh, clarity seeking questions? Honorable uh, Veli Okam and uh, Dennis Ryder. Over to you, Veli. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, Chairperson, yeah, I think that uh, Dr. Smulders hit the nail on the head when she said that the concerns are with the execution of the plans that are laid out. Uh, we, in broad terms, we can agree on a game plan. And, and let's say, for example, that this game plan is very good. The question still is, are the team that's going to run on the field to play this rugby match being, will they be able to win it? Will they be able to win this World Cup? We can have the best game plans in the world, but if the players that must play the game are not up to their task, they will never win. And I think that is where we are. We, we have had a lot of discussions with regards, regards to gated deployment, uh, uh, the fact that we don't have any consequence management, and we haven't heard a lot about that today. I, I think that I fully agree with Dr. Smulders. The execution is where the problems are going to come in. 
We might have the best game plan, but I don't think we've got the best players in the field on at various places in order for us to be able to execute this game plan that, that is there. Uh, with regards to Dr. Hubert, I, I think one of the biggest concerns that everybody has, and we have discussed that quite on numerous occasions, is the whole issue of the debt-to-GDP ratio. Uh, we said the other day that if all the guarantees for state-owned enterprises realizes, we might have a debt cost that is more than our total budget. And uh, the outlook for the future is not very good. Uh, we are currently, our debt service cost is the third highest expenditure cost, but that can easily become the highest expenditure cost. And I do not really see a plan forward to minimize this debt cost, to really get it down. In actual fact, uh, I think that in the past, there was also a lot of promises to get it down and it did not go down. So I think we really need to look at our debt service cost. We currently are paying more on our debt than we are paying for police and for health, et cetera. So we really need to come up with a game plan and then with people that will be able to execute that game plan. Uh, a question for SARS. I think it is very important that we must collect the tax that are already there to be collected. Last year, there was a lot of discussions with regards to, uh, with the previous Minister of Finance, with regards to getting the tax from the taxi industry. Now, I don't know why they call it the taxi industry, because they should actually be called the no-taxi industry. They don't pay tax. The word tax should actually not be in that name. We, we are talking here about an industry that uh, creates roughly 90 billion rands of income, but only pay 5 million rands of tax. Now, there's a lot of talk about uh, increasing tax, uh, people asking for a wealth tax, etc. I think it's just very important that we must get to a point where we tax the tax that are already made provision for. Uh, and we know that SARS said that they are going to go on a uh, they, setting up a task or a plan to get this tax in from the taxi industry, but we haven't seen anything. I would just like to get some feedback on that from uh, Mr. Kiesvetter. Where are we standing with regards to that and how can we do uh, get some more tax? Just to give some clarity on that, the 5 million rand of tax that we get in out of this 90 to 100 billion rand industry, the most or the biggest part thereof is from uh, personal, uh, is, is from employment tax. We, we don't get any VAT in on that. We don't get any income tax in on that. So where are we standing on that? Uh, so yeah, that is just in summary, Chair, I think the biggest thing for us to execute is that we must make sure that we've got people that will be able to do their jobs. And if they don't do their jobs, there must be consequence management for them. Uh, we can't have the same people making the same mistakes every year and keep them there. We need to get rid of people that make mistakes and we need to uh, change them with proper people, skilled people that can do the jobs. The people in our country deserves none, nothing less. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Honorable Ocamp, um, Honorable Raidan, then Honorable Mletan. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chair. And, um, yeah, perhaps at the outset, I'd like to just say that I think that the, the last couple of days discussions have been uh, open and frank and, and, and conducted in a very pleasant environment and manner, very mature from, from all parties involved. And I, I think I've, I've particularly learned quite a bit. And I just wanted to appreciate the, the tone and nature of our discussions.
Uh, on a lighter note, though, Chairperson, I think that uh, seeing uh, Momo with his button done up is like seeing Mr. Mbeki without his pipe or Mr. Khanyako without his moustache. Uh, we don't recognize him if his button is done up. But, uh, but nonetheless, um, Chair, I think I'm going to, to well, I'm going to jump around a little bit, if, if, if I may. I just think that uh, the one comment I want to, to, to start with is just with Amanda Lamobi, and I think that the public participation question is, is quite an important one. Um, and the, the inputs that I'd like to give is that, uh, you know, I think that it's important to start a grassroots movement and start enhancing the level of public participation. And perhaps a good place to start, Amanda Lamobi, would be by participating in the at the provincial level, if not municipal level, but certainly at the provincial level discussions around the D Division of Revenue. And if you were to go and insert yourself in any of those public participation discussions, what you'll find is that the majority of inputs, particularly when it comes to high-level budgeting, the majority of inputs uh, that come from the floor generally relate to basic service delivery issues that have very little to do with with with, um, with with the actual finances. So it's quite difficult to find that balance between having constructive, uh, open and thorough public participation and actually making sure that the, the committee gets proper public participation in terms of having the, the, the answers or, or having the, the right questions asked of it and not having to deal with, with questions that should be better directed at different spheres of government or different departments. So um, I think that, that NGOs generally are well-placed to go on a, a bit of a mission of public awareness and, 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 and public uh, education. And I think perhaps Treasury could do the same as well um, and try and help us to, to enhance the levels of public participations uh, that, that, that we're actually achieving. Um, and I think that that would be most constructive going forward. Um, perhaps we as a committee also have a role to play, uh, and I'll leave that with the chairpersons uh, and, and the administrative staff. Um, getting to to Mr. Parks and and Kasachi, the submission or the comments made there. I think the one thing that I thought is really worth emphasising is that you know a comment that that is not necessarily cuts uh, is is not exactly true because. Yes, uh, an increase below inflation levels is certainly a, a, a cut. Uh, it means having to tighten belts. And just further on his comment, uh, please note that the uh, members of parliament, uh, there is no budget for increases across the medium term. So uh, you, you will note that. Regarding his, his comments on, on the trust of the staff, of the employees on, on the public wage bill issue, um, I just want to emphasize the point that the Constitutional Court upheld a judgment that found that the 28 public sector wage bill agreement was invalid and unlawful. That's an important statement, invalid and unlawful. So I think, you know, talking about trust, et cetera, et cetera, is, is, is perhaps misplaced here when, when two courts and the, court, the highest court in the land specifically has confirmed that, that that wage agreement was unlawful. So I don't believe that there should be a trust issue here. It comes down to, you know, I don't trust my drug dealer um, because he ran away with my money. Well, your transaction was unlawful. So, you know, 
it, it, it doesn't work like that. I mean, I'm not going. To, I'm, not, I'm not comparing our uh, our employees to drug users, but I make the point that 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 agreement has been found to be unlawful. Understand that there may be a feeling of well, we've been let down, but the fact is, you would have been un, uh, the staff would have been unfairly advantaged had it been allowed to go through. So I think that that, that uh, I do understand that there might be a level of disappointment, but the fact is, I think that it needs to be. Uh, considered in a mature environment and understood that the 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 country uh, uh, has has specific needs at the moment um, and an unlawful and unfair increase would have been highly inappropriate at this stage and I think we need to respect the highest court in the land. I wanted to make that point quite quite strongly. Um, if I can then go across to the um, comments from Mr. Lai King, from um, Smulders, from from uh, Mr. Mandy. Um, and and perhaps address or summarize perhaps, and I, I want to talk now to Mr. Keyswetter's uh, input specifically. And I, I also want to say and 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 saying to to Treasury in a very loud and vocal voice, we certainly support an increase in SARS funding. The fact is, if you're going to spend more money uh, to earn more money, um, that can only be seen as a good thing. Um, providing you're earning more than you than you're spending, that's an that's an excellent thing. But to 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 tighten up uh, um, on on the performance of SARS, um, and also to build that trust relationship between SARS and and taxpayers again, because there is a trust deficit there at the moment. Um, and I acknowledge what Mr. Keyswetter said, and I think that we have uh, made leaps and bounds. And 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 I, I you know I'm I'm going to say it for the record. Uh, I am a, a, a Keyswetter fan, um, and I do believe that the the moves that SARS has made, perhaps that's a kiss of death, but yeah, the moves that SARS has made in the last couple of years uh, ha have gone a great way to to rebuilding trust. But there is still a trust deficit, and it's something that we need to deal with. Now, um, I think that that Mr. Keyswetter, your your presentation certainly made the point that the vanilla transactions are handled exceptionally well at this stage. But the point that was made last week and the points that have been made again today um, by the various people that are that are highlighted um, um, have all indicated that the problem comes in when you don't have a vanilla transaction, when things uh, are slightly out of the ordinary and need to be escalated. There's a problem with that escalation process. And I do, uh, you know, I, I know Mr. Kizwetu, you had a go at one of the journalists for for, for, for taking a personal tax matter to and, and writing an article about it. But I don't think that uh, that was entirely fair because I do think that there are many people that are suffering with this issue of as soon as you get into an escalation process, you it, it, it becomes incredibly frustrating. And, 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 and there is just no way of getting to someone who is a decision maker, someone who, who can, can, can uh, you know, re really solve these things and in a fairly quick turnaround time. Now, I do understand that there is a need to insulate such people and, and decision makers in order to ensure that the opportunities for corrupt practices or, 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 or you know, um, undue influence, et cetera, is, is, is limited. So I do understand that insulation is, is necessary. But the, the issue is that I think that there needs to be a clearer process defined in terms of escalation in terms of, of taking those non-vanilla things and getting them resolved, whether they be VAC refunds or, or, or slightly unusual 
uh, issues relating to personal tax. And you spoke repeatedly about habitual non-compliance. And again, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to perhaps abuse this platform for personal tax dis discussions, but to find yourself um, or, or to recover from a non-compliant position um, is incredibly difficult because of the SARS processes, because you need to have your foundation before you can lay your first bricks. Um, and when that foundation isn't there, you can't lay the bricks. So as long as you are waiting for resolution on foundational issues, uh, the brick laying cannot begin. So there may be uh, perhaps an unfair triggering of a perception of habitual non-compliance um, when, when actually that, that, that might not be entirely the correct case. So, um, yeah, perhaps uh, algorithms are good, um, but uh, they also need to be reviewed from time to time as well. Um, I... Uh, um, Raida, yes, uh, I'm... Last, last okay, okay, thank you. I'll wrap up quickly. Just perhaps then I'll move on to the Treasury uh, inputs. Um, just to say from, from Edward, Momo, and Chris, I thought your inputs today were at an excellent level. Um, there's some seriously technical stuff that you've been put in the uh, chat group as well as uh, in those appendices uh, or attachments, and I think that it's going to take us a little bit of time to work through those. But uh, I, I really enjoyed the engagement today, and I just want to say thank you. Um, yes, for time, I'll leave it. Thank you, Chief. Thanks, Honorable Raida. Honorable Mleta, over to you. Thank you, Chair. To Treasury, uh, first, let me apologize for not being on a camera. I'm sure you are aware that I've been uh, in and out due to weak, weak, weak network where I am. Now, to Treasury, as a country, we are spending a lot of fortune in servicing the debts. We need to move away and stop borrowing from IMF and World Bank. Are there no other means that can be followed or implemented and refrain from borrowing from IMF and the World Bank? Actually, Treasury should look for means to return the IMF and World Bank loan, loans and never borrow from them again. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, thanks, Honorable Mletani. Uh, those were the questions and comments. Uh, let me just ask one question from my side. Chairperson. Yeah, oh, I see Honorable <laughs> Unit Harry. Uh, I, oh, I'm going on the platform. <laughs> I am here, Chair. <laughs> but I don't see your hand on the platform. Honorable Njan, oh. Honorable yeah. Arim, over to you, Comrade Njan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Uh, no, Chairperson, mine will be... Mine will be first to... to, to to welcome uh, the the responses from National Treasury and 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 SAS. I think it was a well comprehensive comprehensive uh, response in and well detailed and informative. 
Um, um, and I think uh, when we listen to the stakeholders, there is a general uh, consensus in terms of the responses. So mine will just be, um, I think uh, it will be maybe SARS of, of National Treasury, just to give uh, more detail on the wealth tax that was raised by the farm workers. Uh, just for more clarity on that one. And then um, also to comment SARS, that's a comment chairperson on the turnaround of SARS and also the detailed explanation on each and every uh, point. Then lastly, chairperson is the, on COSATU is the, the points made by COSATU on the scientific cuts, which my understanding was like, you increase, but your increase is below infla in, in inflation. So, 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 so that uh, that one, I, maybe just for more clarity on that one, uh, will be appreciated, and also the growth of population, in the consideration of the growth of population. Uh, thank you very much, Chair. Thanks, Honourable Jando. Honourable Karim. Uh, thanks, Comrade Chair. Just very quickly, firstly, uh, in response to National Treasury, the issue has been raised repeatedly on Wednesday and today. Uh, obviously, we need greater clarity on, you know, an economic growth part. We understand it's not only Treasury's responsibility, government as a whole, and we also uh, feel that more and more needs to be done uh, by the time we get to the medium-term budget policy statement to provide more clarity for this. But also, you know, we keep talking about these structural reforms have been dragging on for like years now, you know, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. The ultimate test of this budget is what happens in practice. Obviously, this is not something that Treasury alone can do. It's a responsibility of government as a whole and the presidency to ensure that it happens. On the Nugent Commission, for what I can understand, there is no overall report uh, on what um, implementations are going to flow from it, but some of them have been inserted already into the legislation that we processed uh, and will be processing. So if there isn't a report, fine, then all the uh, tre um, National Treasury has to do is just say so, that it meant to do such a report, and if there's no such report, they can't make it available. Then on the issue that's been dragging on for years, I just remembered Comrade Joe that I think the last time, I think Alan and Kulilek would check, after failing to get a response, which is quite stunning, actually. As for Parliament, we can't let this pass. And I, I really think in our report, we should say so once again. On this issue, we just need a reply, as was said on Wednesday. They, they can tell us to jump in the lake, but they need to give us a reply. We are Parliament. We're still waiting for a reply beyond the acknowledgements in 2018 that your matter is receiving attention. My endless exchanges with the parliamentary councillor uh, of that period. Uh, I, I think we can't let this pass, Chairperson. I think we need to put something in the report. But if it's correct, can Alan and, and, and Koleko check that we wrote to Minister Mboweni, then we need a reply from Treasury as well. It's basically on the issue, it's so boring to repeat, that shouldn't we focus with ministers, deputy ministers, mayors, and all of us actually, including hopefully MPs, buying cars, that are assembled here at the very least, if not well, not manufactured, uh, you know, they're assembled in our auto industry. Just like the president's been harping on this to remind people what was said on Wednesday, 
about his suits and so on. And we keep having this policy of buy local. Why can't it be done? You know, shouldn't the handbook be changed and so on? Yet again, we need a reply, Chairperson. Otherwise, we're failing in our duty. So was the minister written to? If so, where's the reply? Can uh, the two committee secretaries or three committees engage with the uh, parliamentary liaison officer of National Treasury in this regard, if such a letter has in fact been written. If it hasn't, Chairperson, I'd like to suggest we write to the current minister, who as a former trade unionist, <laughs> no doubt, maybe coming from the Eastern Cape, he might be more empathetic because of the auto industry there. On SARS, I, I think there's some legitimacy and credibility in what people have been saying since Wednesday and before uh, about complaints about SARS. Uh, I think all of us as a committee, um, I mean, as MPs, myself included, have been getting a steady increase in complaints, although it's very difficult to intervene because on tax issues, it's very hard to do so. But anyway, um, while that is the case, you know, I think more could be done on VAT refunds and diesel rebates refunds um, and so on. But overall, Chairperson, I really think SARS is doing a very good job. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think they've made a big leap forward. Obviously, there's no organization, state organ, that can say they've done their best. I mean, they've done the most they could. All of us, wherever we are, in whichever side, can do more. And that's what I hear the commissioner saying. But overall, Chairperson, I think they're doing an excellent job. I also think, you know what, we waste so much of money and we give money to various uh, uh, projects and programs and do we actually deliver on them? The money just gets held over. So, you know, my own view remains that, you know, we must give more to SARS actually, because the more we give them, well, not that money's obviously a good solution to everything, but the more we give them, the more likely it is they will reap a lot more for the fiscus. So we're getting that money back. So it's not as if you're throwing the money away and isn't an outcome. And if they don't deliver on the ex, uh, expanded money allocated to them, then the money will be taken away. So I really think we need to consider, Chairperson, a soft, well, it's appropriations that deal with that issue. But since we deal with the fiscal framework, we can gently ask us, uh, appropriations to look at that. But they need more money allocated to them. Yeah, I hear people saying, you know, Parliament can do this and do that. Yes, in theory and in terms of our constitutional mandate, yes. But the practicalities are far more challenging than people make out. Yet it's correct for them to raise it, the civil society structures. And we would do the same if we were a chairperson in that position. But they will probably reply, as I often say, the same as we do. We, we express our views partly, or if not substantially, from the vantage points that, yes, we can certainly do more. Finally, chairperson, an issue that I have felt strongly about since 2018, and I think we put in our exit report, particularly in Oxy, if you hear, that, you know, it's too much of work for two committees. We need to consider three committees, one looking at oversight and SARS in particular. But I still think there are many SARS issues outstanding. Chairperson, I would suggest the ombud person be called uh, 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 because it's long overdue, I think. I don't know if they, any committees called uh, the ombud, but it's a good idea. Ombud, SARS, and a discussion around that. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Comrade Tunis. Um, just ask uh, a question here. Yeah. Uh, DG, this auctioning of uh, Spectrum, they much talked about auction of a Spectrum. 
Uh, how will the public and the government benefit from uh, selling the spectrum to the private sector? Are we not going to create another monopoly that is going to be problematic in the long run? Can you explain in simple terms? Uh, uh, will government benefit in terms of revenue? Is it a once-off sale? And what, 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 what benefit will the public have and government? So I just want to understand in just simple terms, because I have heard about it uh, several times and for many years. Uh, over to you, uh, Treasury. I'm not sure whether the Deputy Minister has arrived or the delegation is still led by the DG. Uh, uh, over to you, Treasury and uh, SARS. Uh, Chair, I'm not sure the, the, the DG is connected. Um, however, there's a number of colleagues here from Treasury who can uh, deal with the different questions, including on the, um, on the structure reforms, as well as um, at least to the extent that uh, we have the information on the, the details of the spectrum, because remember the spectrum allocation and process has been run um, uh, under the mandate of the communication department. Um, by the way, sorry, Chair, but I'm, I'm not able to turn on my video because my network keeps saying it's unstable. So I do apologize. Um, so let me deal with the fiscal questions, which are very brief. Uh, Momo and team can deal with the revenue questions as well as uh, Commissioner Kisweta. And I uh, believe my colleagues, Boipuso, Modisa, and Nomvuyoku are here to, um, to, uh, to deal with the, uh, um, the, the structural issues. Um, the questions on fiscal were mostly quite technical. So the fiscal study group's questions on things like signage, et cetera, I think it would be best to answer such questions in writing. They're extremely technical questions. Uh, what I can say is that on the deficit and on the debt, um, Yes, of course, we are very concerned about the debt and the deficit. Hence, I think we've been uh, quite vocal in and quite aggressive in addressing uh, this issue. Uh, but at this time, um, it's quite clear that the deficit is going down over the medium term. In fact, the deficit has already started declining, uh, partly because of the measures we've put in place, but also because of the improvements in revenue. So while GDP growth remains weaker than what we would like. It's still positive. The denominator is still positive. And um, combine that with the fact that revenues have come in so much better than we thought, and the fact that uh, spending restraint has been good in government. We're not seeing overspending at the moment by departments. If you put those together, you can see already a deficit um, uh, improvement. And I would refer the colleagues from the fiscal study group to chapter three of the budget review, which so shows the numbers in great, great detail. The SACU question is also very technical. It involves a, the revenue sharing formula. Um, we could talk about that the whole day, but I'll spare members of the committee uh, the pain of such a, 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 a technical outline by just simply saying that um, this obviously is part of 
a um, a customs union that is essentially a treaty that we've signed with our neighboring countries. Um, and um, um, it's a free trade area um, where we share the, the customs revenue that comes in. Um, uh, SARS can also talk about the customs revenue as well. But I think those questions we from our side can deal with outside and can also provide responses in writing. Um, the comments uh, by COSATU, I think we broadly welcome them. Um, the, the spending comments were also quite technical. Um, and I think the appropriation committee will deal with issues of spending. So we'll leave most of those details to the discussions at the appropriation committee. Suffice it to say that um, uh, Mr. Parks uses an approach to analyzing the budget uh, uh, that we call incrementalism, uh, where you calculate percentage on an incremental basis. Um, as we announced in 2020, we are starting to move away from this approach um, in the budget process and focusing rather on what the actual money is buying and what and how efficiently it's buying. It's a long and difficult process, a lot more difficult than just using percentages. But we think that in the long term, it will be more useful to the public and to members of parliament to understand what actually the money is buying rather than focusing on percentages. And that's the direction which we're going. But for sure, the appropriation committee uh, um, uh, uh, will will deal with the details of all of the spending allocations. Um, uh, finally, on the points uh, raised uh, by the uh, Parliamentary Budget Office, we agree uh, fully. All models have limits, and we don't rely on just one um, in, in that regard. Um, I think you know, you know, the the, the measures that announced in 2020 and 2021 were very difficult. We did not want to implement fiscal consolidation. We didn't prefer it, but we had a serious problem. And the problem is highlighted by members today, which is debt and debt service costs that are, are rising and rising and rising. Um, and, 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 and we can't just allow these debt service costs to continue rising. Uh, therefore, we are, as we indicated, taking 45% of the unexpected revenue windfall and putting it into debt reduction and reducing the deficit uh, because of this serious problem. So we have to walk a very tight, tight rope, Honorable Chair, very, very difficult. Um, and that's what we're trying to do to balance the needs, the very real and genuine needs on the spending side with the very real need to avoid debt and debt service costs from running away, uh, 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 running away uh, 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 from us. Um, so, Chair, I'll stop there. Nomvuyo um, and uh, Poipuso can speak about the spectrum and structural reforms, and uh, Momo and uh, the Commissioner can speak about revenue. Thank you. Uh, before they come in, I see the end of Honorable Karim. Honorable Karim? No, Chair, I can just come in at the end. Just a practical two things we have to consider. I can come in at the end, thanks. If that's okay with you. Okay. Sure. Okay, Treasury can continue. Thank you, Chair, and good morning, everyone. Um, as to the question on spectrum, um, what we anticipate um, from the eventual permanent allocation of spectrum through this process um, is that this may ultimately lead to lower 
digital telecommunications costs. Uh, and we know that this can have feed through effects into several sectors in the economy and forms part of government's broader um, ambitions to digitize some of its services and also just to lower the cost of doing business in South Africa, uh, which can then lead to improved um, economic growth. I think in the immediate term, one of the bigger benefits would be um, in terms of furthering our ambitions to have a more inclusive economy. Um, and so in terms of getting people access to the internet, to broadband at faster speeds, um, this would be sort of the, the sort of initial aim and target through the selected release of Spectrum through this auction process. Thank you. Yeah, maybe let me add on that um, briefly. Uh, what we, what we, we're looking at, you know, revenues coming our way. I mean, a minimum at least, we're looking at about 8 billion, right at the beginning, say 10 billion at the beginning, um, over a 20-year period. Um, and all six players will be participating. So whether we'll, we create another monopoly is another thing because all six players will be participating. And we, we or usage fees of every year, what, five, six billion a year at least coming through, you know, so... There's definitely some spin-offs coming through um, in terms of this, uh, you know, spectrum release and, and auction. So there, there's certainly once-off cost that you'll get and an annual fee, uh, you know, that will get based on, on the formula. And through the SA Connect obligations, we are putting all of those in, in as part of the deal. Uh, we expect them to connect state police stations, the courts. And so, and over and above the things that uh, we was talking about, um, you know, broadband, you know, access is, is, is going to be key and there's definitely going to be economic spin-offs in some of these things. I'll let Bipuso come in, Chair, and, and, and then we'll round off and then, and then we can talk on to the tax issues. But Honor um, Mulazan is raising one or two important things uh, that we, the, it's, it's important, the public is talking about it. We cannot shy away from there around our debt service and our debt cost. But if you think about the, the key issue that is mentioning whether we should be retaining the IMF World Bank loans and whether we should be stopping borrowing. Um, at some point, I think it, it's a broader issue other than just a national treasury issue, as we expected, but essentially uh, the whole of government, uh, including the whole of the, the state, must then apply its mind because we, we would obviously approach government, um, cabinet, etc., and I would have wished that uh, my principals were in this meeting, but unfortunately cannot make it. But it's something that, again, we, we, we can at future meetings engage with it, uh, whether, you know, uh, I've got certain responsibilities as accounting officer of the Treasury, and, uh, it's, it's, uh, and, and I go to the market every day, I mean, every week, uh, through various auctions. And as a responsible public servant here, I have to choose whether you know I get one percent or uh, I get eight uh, percent. If my debt service cost total, uh, I'm spending three hundred and three billion a year, vis-a-vis, -vis, I mean, you know, second highest, fastest growing type of expenditure, and I want to lower that. And there's cheaper options with no no obligation. I'm sorry, conditionalities, as as we've consistently said, and 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 if it's an issue of a political nature. And uh, that, that is, uh, you know, inhibiting us, as normal as Molotani say, then obviously we will, it has to be ensured that at a much higher political level, 
uh, and, and those conversations should happen. But as things are currently, uh, I'm not prohibited by the current, uh, you know, uh, di- direction from cabinet to access money from the bank. All I need to do is to ensure that I don't put the sovereignty of the state in, into jeopardy, and I'm doing that, and that I don't enter into conditionalities that may bind future generations in a way that uh, will be unable to service the debt. And I'm have to do, I'm doing all of that currently. So we, the, if the issue, I guess, on our is much bigger than just us as officials trying to interact with, with our day-to-day function of raising money. As I said, we raise about 15, 20 billion a week uh, from the capital markets. And nowadays, because of the performance of global economy, performance of South African economy, it has become very expensive to go to market in the way that you would want to compare to when I go to the IMF last year and I went to the World Bank. Or if I go to the African Development Bank, including the new development bank, all of these four DFIs, uh, one international DFIs, one obviously access resources from the ongoing basis. But it's something that politically can be engaged with. And um, we put so maybe you can come in with a number of other questions that are there and Momo can close off from a tax policy point of view. And then the commissioner can address some of the tax administration issues. Thanks, Bipuso. Thanks, DG. Uh, good morning, Chair and Honourable Members. Please accept my apologies as well for my camera. I'm also getting an unstable connection notification. Um, I think it's bro- uh, the questions on, on structural reforms have broadly been covered. Maybe just to add one thing uh, for your reference, Chair and Honourable Members, we do give an upside scenario in Chapter 2 of the Budget Review that gives a sense of the collective or combined impact of the structural reforms that we propose in Chapter uh, in, 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 in chapter 2 and what they could collectively do to increase or augment baseline growth over the medium term, but also into the long run, into the long run. Thank you. Okay. Now, Chair, let me come in on the tax issues. Um, I, I think, Chair, on the tax issues, there were a number of questions, um, some of them quite technical and some of them more general. And I want to say, and, and let me give an example. I mean, when we've been asked about the 25% tax to GDP, the questions range from how do we arrive at that figure, the technical basis, and Chris has answered that on the chat uh, to some extent, versus whether that's a ta- target. I think the, 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 the key point to make perhaps is, and I like to think this, uh, and I believe this has been the case, is we're always open to answer technical questions. And to the extent that uh, anyone still wants to, they, they feel free to write to them. People like Sharon continually uh, contact us. Uh, so I get a bit surprised when issues are raised. They, they're free to raise those issues with us and we're quite happy to engage with them. And in fact, the day we stop engaging, it's a problem. Uh, so we, we, we're quite happy to do that. I think with regard to questions of, of a more policy type, is 25% a target? No, it's not. Um, uh, uh, yes, we do watch the tax to GDP, but ultimately tax policy like uh, with spending and so on is a question of balance. And we have to take into account the spending level, uh, the extent to which we borrow, and to what extent we have to Uh, increase or decrease or whatever change the current tax policy, those issues come to the fore. 
I think up to 2015, generally the trend and the discussion was always about how much do you lower taxes? It's just in recent years, as uh, expenditure levels have gone up, debt has gone up, the issue has come up, to what extent do we increase taxes? And that's why I think when we've raised issues, and I guess that's why for many, they think that 25% is a limit, it's not. Um, It's an outcome, we do take it into account. But to the extent that uh, taxes are increased, you know, it does have an impact on growth. So we, we need to look at all those factors when we take that into account. I think the questions on the wealth tax, again, that you one can ask. In principle, we're not uh, against. In fact, I would be personally broadly supportive of a wealth tax, but we do have certain forms of wealth tax already in the system. The question, I guess, is more, again, one of balance. How much do we want to have a wealth tax and why? Is it because we feel richer people are not taxed enough, which, which I think could be a strong case? But the other issue, of course, is in taxing richer people, they, you, you also get much more tax structuring. I think Chris Axelson pointed out when we increase the personal income tax to 45%, we did not get the revenue that we expected. So we've got to take all of those factors into account to the extent that Uh, We are getting more information. I think we are taking firm steps to measure wealth because we we have records on income or sales wood in the system, but not on wealth. And to the extent that we have a wealth tax, there are papers out. Again, the question needs to be asked, are we doing it for revenue uh, reasons? In which case, the wealth tax actually does not raise much per year. Or are we raising it because, as I said, from an equity perspective? And it could be both objectives, and there could be good grounds for both. But again, to the extent that we get more revenue from any tax, again, there's a question. Do you then use it to reduce debt? Do you use it to increase expenditure? Or do you use it to lower taxes? Because the compact that we had up to 2015 was that, and and, and that we put in place and we continue to hold on to, is that, if we can widen the tax base and, and get more revenue, we're able to then lower the tax rate for many people in the economy, and that could have a positive impact on growth. So that's an ideal objective, but that's how we would view it. I think, Chair, I do want to raise just one other issue before the commissioner comes in, and in a way to protect SARS. I think that, uh, I mean, I do get surprised for example, the input by Mr. King. Yes, we have had meetings, but sometimes, you know, when you, those who come and make representation on a budget and have all the right to do so, but they also represent clients. And of course, they have to talk the book of their clients. And I think it's not fair when those issues are raised at budget hearings. I think the the difficulty for SARS is that there's tax confidentiality. Can they really talk to and someone from a company uh, about their tax base, uh, the, the, you know, given their tax confidentiality. And some of those issues, to be fair, yes, when we took up issues, some of those issues are about specific tax base. And we, they're not going to make progress uh, even with the Treasury. And that doesn't mean that there aren't general issues that have been raised on verification and so on. And clearly those are issues that I think SARS also needs to look at but to the extent that it's also driven by specific taxpayers 
and and what their status is again the treasury doesn't come in and i think the way these matters are handled also just needs to be taken into account but perhaps the commissioner can can come in on that thank you chair i think i've answered most of the uh, the big questions chris if there's anything else feel free to come in No, fine from my side. Thanks, Mo. Thank you. Thank you, um, Honorable Chair and members. Um, and thank you for the various representatives for their comments and input. Let, let me just start, first of all, by saying that uh, you could not persuade us anymore that trust between SARS and its taxpaying public is fundamental. It is sacrosanct for us. To the same extent that trust between government and society is sacrosanct. Um, and so implicit in what we are trying to do is to create a working relationship that is beyond reproach and that is trustworthy. We accept that we have to earn that trust and it's not a right that we can demand. So I do not want to leave any of those um, of the public representatives or our um, members of parliament in any doubt that we value, that we understand the value of trust. Um, in a moment, I will, I will ask my colleague, our chief revenue officer, Mr. Johnson Makubu, to talk about refunds, and I will ask um, Mr. Wayne Broughton, our Chief Litigation Officer, to talk about objections and appeals. But I would like to continue just making a few other responses. I, th I don't think that it is correct, neither is it fair, for anyone to claim that SARS acts as if it has absolute power. We respect the law, and we understand the rights of citizens, we understand the rights of taxpayers. And we understand very well that every single decision we make is subject to some form of objection, appeal, and ultimately some form of dispute resolution. It is also not helpful uh, to use some of the inflammatory language uh, when referring to the occasions when we do drop the ball. And I cannot sit here and tell you we'll never drop the ball. Uh, but what I can tell you is we will work hard to pick up every ball that we drop and to reduce the number of balls that we drop as we make progress. Um, in terms of, of wealth tax, all I'm going to say and I've been very clear about that, whilst it's not my decision or SARS's decision on tax policy and tax rates, we are very clear that there is so much opportunity to improve tax collection that we should, in all effort, target the progress that we can make at SARS, because it is the cheapest form of money for government and the best way to restore fiscal integrity. 
um, as opposed to increasing taxes. That's our view. And it is our view because we also understand the inverse correlation in compliance between tax rates that is considered as too onerous and ultimately what is collected. And as my colleagues in Treasury said, we have reached a point of inflection in many respects. Um, in terms of the taxi industry, I, I think it is probably appropriate to have a more comprehensive discussion on the taxi industry, um, Honorable Ocamp. But I can also give you the assurance that we have begun to um, initiate a focused work stream um, busy conducting a compliance study um, to understand better the taxi landscape from a compliance perspective. Now, in that regard, we can share with you that in doing this study, we have come across about 300 taxi owners who just each of them respectively have more than 20 taxis. So what you have is a taxi business that employs 20 or more taxi drivers. And so this is a, actually a fully-fledged business and therefore completely subjected to all the rules and regulations. And I agree with the sentiment that they must be handled without fear or favor and they have to honor their tax obligations. We are unambiguous in that regard. Just to give you another data point, the, the 300 taxi owners that we have begun to look at represents um, an economic uh, value uh, equating at least 200 million rand a year. Um, and there are many, and so we have begun to do some risk profiling uh, ahead of selecting uh, a significant number of them uh, for further audit and investigation work. We are working with San Paco um, and the NTA. We have started in terms of our own compliance approach is to say, what more can we do to provide clarity and certainty, help them understand their obligations? Secondly, um, uh, translate that into education programs. How do we help them uh, to reduce the burden of compliance uh, and then ultimately uh, detecting and, and giving effect to non-compliance. Uh, so this is clearly on our radar, but you're absolutely right to raise it as a huge area of concern. Um, to to, um, to Mr. Mr. Ryder, Honorable Ryder, um, I, I think the, the, the issue of, of um, raising um, individual tax matters uh, on the public platform or in this forum, we consider to be highly inappropriate. Um, and we would encourage all taxpayers uh, to come to us um, to resolve their particular matter, uh, but also not to extrapolate the experience um, as the general experience. Um, and I agree with you that, uh, and we accept completely that um, when we come to complex uh, and non-standard cases, they are harder, um, more difficult 
and more challenging to complete. There are many more pitfalls. There are many more areas where we disagree on interpretation, um, very more likely to be uh, result in disputes. Um, and so that's the landscape. Um, uh, and we will work hard uh, to be as effective and efficient with complex matters as we have become with standard matters. Um, I, I think the, the issue on refunds will be covered in a moment by, by uh, Mr. Johnson Makubu. Um, and then I will come back uh, and make a few other remarks, uh, picking up from the contribution by various members. Uh, Mr. Johnson. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, I'll just turn on my screen uh, and greetings to the honourable members. Uh, and as far as uh, our refunds are concerned, I think it's it's quite encouraging that we are seeing a year-on-year -year increase on the best refunds that we've been able to uh, to pay uh, comparatively to, to last year. So so that 15% year-on-year increase um, is telling us that. Uh, despite the challenges that we may be facing, uh, we are constantly working to ensure that we inject uh, money into the into the economy um, at the rate that um, that we, we ought to. Uh, we've seen again a year-on-year improvement on the personal income tax refunds that we've been able to to pay um, an increase of, of again of around 15 percent uh, in December uh, and and. In January, as the leadership at SARS, uh, we took a decision to um, uh, work and additionally to release around 10 billion rands uh, in, in refunds, uh, both in the bad space and uh, personal income tax. This was a deliberate um, action to ensure that uh, we relook some of the caseload that is sitting in our inventory and, and intervene through government processes. And again, this is to make sure that um, we uh, less prejudice taxpayers uh, that uh, uh, would have been waiting for that cash flow from a, a, a funding and money point of view, the 10 billion. Uh, and we could have done um, a lot more better in terms of how we landed this um, uh, 10 billion rands uh, in terms of how we dealt with it. Because in, in particular, um, the, the 10 billion rents that we released were released whilst we were still busy with audits um, that were still uh, ongoing. But we felt that the risk uh, um, that these taxpayers um, exposed themselves to was quite minimal. And again, this is in line with our compliance theory, where we believe that the taxpayer poses uh, less risk. We will accordingly uh, treat them um, uh, in a manner that is differentiated. So uh, we will continue to uh, enhance and work in that particular way, uh, where taxpayers pose less risk, um, even if their their refunds are sitting on our inventory, we will uh, treat them in a differentiated manner. I must also state, uh, Chair, that we also continue to find that there are refunds that are sitting in our environment that we cannot process um, by virtue of waiting for specific activities from taxpayers. By way of example, uh, we've got um, around 6 billion rands that we cannot process in credits simply because there's outstanding returns uh, by taxpayers, uh, especially in the VAT environment. Um, there is around 3 billion rands of battery funds that we cannot process by virtue of invalid banking details. And again, in law, 
it's important that we pay refunds to appropriate accounts. And without taxpayers cooperating with us, it becomes quite difficult to process those refunds. Uh, and, and, and we continue to work uh, in line with our strategic objective number eight, to work with, with and through stakeholders to improve the ecosystem. And in this regard, we continue to engage taxpayers to make sure that uh, we process those refunds um, and continue to urge taxpayers to come forward um, to uh, ensure that we are able to process those particular refunds. Commissioner, I'll, I'll stop here. Um, overall, we, we are again um, uh, encouraged that there is a year-on-year improvement on the refunds that we are paying uh, and where we find that there are bottlenecks, we are working hard uh, and tirelessly to remove those bottlenecks. Thank you. Thank you, Johnson. And, and Chair, I really would like to invite anyone, any member of the public, where they believe SARS has deliberately and maliciously manipulated the payment of refunds to bring a particular instance to us, to our attention. And if, we, if there is evidence that bears that out, those who are involved in such uh, manipulation, I can give you the assurance will be held to account because we do not stand for that. Um, and and, and um, as opposed to making a general claim or allegation that SARS is manipulating refund and that we've gone back to uh, what happened in 2014. I think that's unkind and I think it's unfair. Um, can I invite Mr. Uh, Wayne Broughton, our Chief Litigation Officer, uh, to just give you a uh, one or two data points on objections and appeals. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, I'm not sure if my camera is working. I don't think it's the meeting yet. But um, the SACA raised the issue of objections and appeals, and the objections, particularly in relation to what I thought would be, would be the verification issues. So we had reported earlier, Commissioner, on the that were dealt with in the tax court. Um, regarding objections from about 2019 until currently, the uh, rate of objections to assessment rates has gone down fairly dramatically. Just come sit here quickly. Sorry about that. Um, so the, the, the objections, just to report quickly on the objections, from 2019 until today, the rate of objections to uh, assess has gone down fairly dramatically. In 2019, the rate was approximately 33%. 2020, it went down to 22%. 2021, it was 11%. And this year so far, we're looking at a rate of around 7%. So <clears throat> I think the international norm, according to the OECD, sits at around 10% or 15%. Um, one of the significant challenges that we have in the objection stage is that is, that, is the lack of documentation that's provided. Um, if you look at the rate of concession of appeals in the tax board arena, which is appeals under a million rand, um, it sits at around 70% approximately. And the vast majority of and the vast majority of those appeals are resolved 
um, in the ADR setting, primarily because documentation has not been provided in the dispute process up until the time that an ADR uh, hearing is heard. So <clears throat> that, that sits consistently around 60 to 70% um, of cases. Um, <clears throat> I think that we're working pretty hard to, to address the objections and appeals, particularly the objections as the first challenge stage in, in the disputes process. And we've been directed to have a, a look at this and to follow up on various time limits where what we've done is requested that taxpayers have, an, have a further 30 days to lodge an objection. Um, regarding, the, regarding the commentary on some of the cases that we're dealing with, um, I think that um, I, I appreciate the comments from the members and from the commissioner that it is unfair to expect us to comment on particular cases that are in court. We, we do operate under an adversarial court system and the, 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 the nature of the cases that we're in court over are highly combative. Um, and some of the litigation is, is opportunistic and it borders on abuse and we meet taxpayers in that, in that, in that scenario. The difficulty or the, the, the plea that we would have is that under Section 11.4 of the Tax Administration Act, we can agree to resolve disputes. And we monitor that constantly. And it's a, it's a method to, it's a conciliation, conciliatory method that we, we do try and, uh, and encourage. Thank you. Thank you, Chair, just to conclude that in, in the litigation space dispute resolution, we have restructured the, uh, that area and also made some leadership changes. Um, and uh, I'm confident that we will slowly begin to see um, some improvement in that area as well. Um, can I then conclude, uh, Honorable Chair and members, uh, to thank the members who have recognized uh, the contribution we make, especially uh, Mr. Parks, um, Mr. Ryder, uh, Mr. Njadu, and, and Mr. Karim, and others. Um, our staff need that encouragement, and, and it, it's good for them to hear that their work is, is being recognized. Uh, Chair, we are under no illusion that we have a very, very difficult job, and we are doing it under trying circumstances with the resources available to us. Um, and we do regard this as a, a role that we dare not uh, fail in because the consequences for our country um, is, uh, is, 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 is too significant. Um, I want to also just share that we use COVID as an opportunity to step up the work we do. And I can positively say that during the COVID period, we continued the revenue administration system without missing a beat. We enabled more than 90% of our staff to work remotely. We built additional 45 digital applications to support social distancing uh, and, and, and people working from home, both taxpayers and our staff. And we collected the revenue that we were mandated to collect. 
And we did all of this uh, because you have over 12,000 committed employees uh, and here and there still a few that we have to bring along um, and, and, and continually engage them better. It is disappointing, but I guess not surprising that the narrative um, sometimes comes across that the taxpayers are the, the good guys and that SARS is the big bully. Um, and again, if there are instances where it is demonstrated that we have been heavy handed, I invite any feedback uh, and can give you the sincere commitment that we will address that. Um, thank you for acknowledging our efforts. Thank you to the committee members, especially honorable members for your continued support. I have only ever found you to be supportive of the work we do. Thank you for also uh, giving support to the additional funding requirements. Be assured that uh, you have a committed um, leadership at SARS, committed organization. Um, and I am, um, I am really, really encouraged that slowly but surely and steadily, uh, we will not only rebuild and restore SARS to what it was, but we will deliver an organization that is deserving uh, of the democracy and our people. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, I will uh, pause there unless there are further questions. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Commissioner TG, uh, National Treasury and your team, uh, stakeholders. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, Honorable Karim, Honorable Matlangu, and Honorable Butelez would like to make uh, remarks before we close the meeting. Yeah, Commissioner Chair, can I just come in quickly? Uh, is that okay? Yes. Yeah, sure, very quickly. I, I meant to say this earlier, but some of these deals with processing of issues. The first is, uh, Jefferson, I, I, I think we should, I don't know what you feel, um, we should ask National Treasury to meet the tax practitioners because we have this thing repeatedly in Parliament where certain people keep hearing and saying more or less the same thing at every hearing, whether it's this committee or, or these committees or any other committees. And what we've suggested before is finally, you know what, let them meet outside, offline, and sort these matters out. And finally, you know, we can't prescribe to uh, certain public entities and what they do on operational issues. So then we say, okay, it's closed. You will recall under your co-chairperson, we had deal with Mr. Deacon, and that's how we resolved it. And Mr. Momonyat and Saz, I think, well, Momonyat mostly, smile, engaged with him, and finally we told him, you'll recall we did the joint letters, that, look, it's over, you can't come back and repeat the same things. So the same might apply here. As it is, they do meet with these tax practitioners. Jefferson, I think we should confer with the legal services unit. What is Parliament's role, you see, in regard to these issues? It's fine if people come and raise policy issues and generic issues. But if they are raising issues solely on behalf of a specific set of clients, I'm not sure. Maybe they're allowed to be here, maybe they're not. We need some clarity on this. Usually what we've done in other committees, Chair, is if there's a federal structure of the professionals, we encourage the individuals, let's say the tax association, the tax institute, and the chartered accountants, you know, they, they can do their representations via them and the national structures come 
and make representation to parliament. But we can't stop anybody necessarily from coming who's an individual tax practitioner. But there's a limit to which we can hear the same things repeatedly in this forum. This is not the forum we can negotiate around these things. So I think we need some advice from legal services how we manage these issues on tax. I also think that, uh, you know, the point is made about absolute power. Well, that power derives from the very legislation we pass in Parliament. So if there are people who feel that the power is too much that's allocated to SARS, then the way forward is to propose amendments to the legislation. And they can do that by, you know, uh, various means, uh, which they can consult with legal services about, or the committee secretaries. Uh, I, I really think, Chairperson, that, you know, some of these things are operational. We cannot judge, really, whether there are people within SARS or the SARS commissioner, for that matter, unless there's evidence and so on, the ombudsperson is the right person. Uh, uh, you know, if individuals are, uh, are exercising absolute power beyond what the law and the norms and the regulations allow, there is an ombudsperson, chairperson. So maybe one of the things that we've suggested Wednesday and again today is that we have uh, a, a discussion with the ombud and find out what the ombud thinks about some of these allegations. But chairperson, I think we should avoid interfering in operational issues, really. Nobody wants to pay tax anywhere in the world. And tax uh, agencies all over the world are accused of being abusive and so on. Well, if that's the case, finally, if they do abuse their power, the ultimate recourse is the court. We are not a court. So bring us legislative amendments if you want. But can we? Can I plead, Chairperson, that for our report, we consider, uh, you know, as the co-chairs, maybe we can guide the, the, the draft that comes to us, but we can also take a decision collectively on Tuesday that, uh, you know, SARS meets with them, especially the two uh, 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 of like national organizations, and maybe Mr. Luther King, so that we sort these issues out. But can we urge that people not come back here raising the same issues over and over again? Finally, I have to share some sad news with you, what prompted me also to intervene. I don't know if you're aware, but I got an email, if I'm correct, from somebody, Thomas and Mr. Meekin actually passed away. And I think, Chairperson, we should write a joint letter. Look, none of us agreed with him about his land-only policy, tax policy. It goes back, in my case, when I was chairing local government in 1999-2000. But he was absolutely persistent, resilient, and he came at his age repeatedly, physically, to hearings and meetings. He sat through endless meetings. I'm not going to go on. I think as a basic courtesy, we don't agree with him, but at least he took this parliament seriously, and never gave up until we finally closed off, as you recall, Co-Chair. So I suggest that in the next few days, Chairperson, you and I on behalf of the committees send his family a letter of condolence. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Honorable Karim. Uh, Honorable Butelezi, Honorable Mashango. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Uh, it looks chair, my comrade uh, Mashlangu has indicated that she had to leave at 11.45. She's co-chairing the financial management of 
parliament. Uh, so she did indicate. So that's why she's gone at 11.45, I think. And I think Comrade Goodlez is not uh, at this meeting. Thank you. Okay. Uh, th thanks very much, uh, Honorable Karib, uh, for making those uh, remarks. Uh, I think they will also serve as closing remarks. Uh, Mr. Eninglaiking, the language that we are using in the chat, I don't think is acceptable. We, we, you have requested that you want to have a meeting with SARS and Treasury. Fine. I, I don't think they will have a problem uh, meeting you. But to request uh, the chairperson to give you an opportunity to rebuke, uh, I, I think that language is, is, is very strong and further saying all. We have listened to you. You raised the issues, National Treasury uh, response and the SARS, but you come back on the chat and uh, uh, request an opportunity to rebuke. I, I, I don't think that is allowed in the parliamentary platform. Uh, use a language that is acceptable uh, to parliament and to your colleagues uh, in National Treasury and uh, SARS. You have met SARS before, uh, uh, as you have requested. Uh, so uh, let, let, let's, let's engage uh, like colleagues uh, rather than as uh, adversaries. Uh, thanks very much, uh, honorable members, uh, uh, National Treasury, uh, SARS, stakeholders, uh, the media. Uh, what will happen is that uh, next week on the 8th of March, uh, we are going to have a joint finance committee meeting to adopt the fiscal framework and the revenue report, of which the report uh, will be uh, debated or be submitted to parliament for debate and for adoption. Uh, I see Honorable Okam is raising his hand when I'm closing the meeting. Are you objecting to me closing the meeting, Honorable Okam? No, no, Honorable Chair, I'm not objecting to you closing the meeting. I just think that uh, we must be very careful to label what somebody said as unparliamentary. I've read through the chat now. I don't think that there was anything that was said in the chat group that's unparliamentary or unbecoming. And I think that we must be careful not to try and label that to people that must, re must present or have presented to this meeting. I think it's valid questions. And I think we must refrain uh, from giving a label of what they said. I think it's real concerns that they had. And we know that time constraints might prohibit us from uh, addressing that. But, but to call that unparliamentary, I don't think it is right, uh, Chair. Just my five cents on this. Thank you very much. It is unparliamentary, Honorable Okam, to rebuke is to admonish. I don't think uh, you will want that language. Uh, so, uh, and it's scolding. No, 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 wait, Ryder. I'm making a closing remarks here. We understand English very well. We're not uh, first language speakers, but I don't think as a chairperson, I will allow somebody to say that he want to rebuke SARS, that will not be accepted. I'm making that ruling. Please. Uh, no, 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 honorable writer. There are numerous definitions of the word, Jay. Perhaps no. you 
No, no, no. <laughs> we, a SARS and national treasury equally have to be protected from the language that is used by stakeholders. And if they can do that from their side, that will not also be allowed. They have to be equally protected. It can't be that uh, when they put their case here, uh, we can talk to them as much as we wish. It should not be. And we must inform our stakeholders that there's a language acceptable that is used in the parliamentary platform. I, I think let's, let, let's, let's agree with that. Uh, uh, so as I've said, uh, we'll continue with the process next week on the 8th to have a meeting to look at the report and the two committees uh, will have to adopt the report, uh, reports that will be submitted to parliament. The meeting is uh, adjourned until we meet again next week. Thanks very much. Thanks, Chair. I can't answer, I can't answer,